And now let's raise the curtain on the Mercury Theater. Mr. Wells. Tonight, for our last broadcast on this series, besides your obedient servant, you'll hear the following Mercury players. Miss Agnes Moorhead, Mr. Edgar Berrier, Elliot Reed, Mr. Reen Tuttle. Of course, a lot of the shows were put out awfully fast, you know. One summer, I did the Sam Spade show and the Orson Welles show. All at once. It seemed to me they were all at the same time, practically. So... I said to Orson, I can't make this rehearsal. I can possibly make the show in about three minutes if I can get from NBC to CBS. But I said, I can't rehearse. And he said, well, come over and rehearse noontime then, during the lunch hour. So I would come over there, and of course, he always loved to talk. And he would talk all through lunch, and I wouldn't get to rehearse with him because he always had a coterie of people around him, you know, and wanted to hear him talk. So I would just sit there, you know, with my script in my hand. Then I'd have to hand the script back because they'd say, oh, there'll be a lot of changes, so you better not take it with you. I love you more than words can we... You see, I always felt that we had to work with an all-physical person. We always worked from the, the full person. At least I did, and I know that all of us tried to work that way because that's the only honest way to do it. You have, you have to have a person who lives and breathes and walks and is alive rather than just turning on a voice. Because you could conjure up, if you really had, through imagination, anything that you wanted to be. That's why I loved it, too. Because I could play opposite Jimmy Stewart, or Frederick March, or Cary Grant, or Gary Cooper, or Leslie Howard. Mm. And on the air, I could be the most glamorous, gorgeous, tall, black-haired female you've ever seen in your life, whatever I wish to be, I could be with my voice. That was the thrilling part to me. Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 105. My name is James Scully. Tonight on Breaking Walls, we pour shots and take dictation with the adventures of Sam Spade. Never know how much I love you. Never know how much I care. When you put your arms around me. I get a fever that's so hard to bear You give me fever When you kiss me, fever When you hold me tight Fever In the morning A fever all through the night If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening theme song is Peggy Lee's version of Fever. A great song for the chemistry between those involved in Sam Spade. Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast at facebook.com slash groups slash the wallbreakers. And Burning Gotham. The new historical fiction audio drama set in 1835 New York City is on its way. Go to burninggotham.com for new teasers and more information. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. When you kiss a fever with 
I was a music critic. Music is what I really uh, started out to be and what I think I still know best, although I've gotten away with, excuse the expression, murder. But in 1929, my brother, who was very much older than I, was copy chief at Batten, Barton, Durston, and Osborne, the great advertising agency in New York. The agency had just signed up. These were the very new days, please remember, of radio. It was a very, very new medium. But in those days, BBDNO, to shorten it, had inveigled the Metropolitan Opera Company into signing up an exclusive contract with the agency to use its artists. Roy Durston, the vice president of the agency, was having lunch with my brother and said that he had now done this great thing, but now he was suddenly confronted by the problem of making programs that would fit into an hour, and nobody knew enough about the opera lingo and how long was Una Furtiva Lagrima from L'Elisa d'Amore, uh, was that a fast or a slow one from Rigoletto? <laughs> and uh, Tristan and Isolde was probably too heavy. And he needed somebody to arrange programs with the conductors and with the singers and with the artists. And my brother said, well, my kid brother, meaning me, Bill, who was a music critic at Musical America magazine, getting, I think I was up to $32.50 a week, uh, you know, which was high living in 1929, said he knows everything about music and maybe he'd be your man. So we had lunch and anyway, I got lured into radio and never to quit until I came east some years ago. William Spear was born on October 16, 1906 in New York City. He began his career as an editor at Musical America magazine, eventually becoming its chief critic. His radio career began in 1929 when he produced and directed the Atwater Kent Hour, a Sunday Metropolitan Opera presentation. He soon became a valuable member of BBD&O's growing staff of radio writers and directors. In 1931, Spear was one of the people responsible for the creation of the March of Time. Did you have a feeling for drama? Did you have an interest in it, even then? Yes, I did. I had always been, a, as Jimmy Durante says, a carnivorous reader, but hadn't had much chance to use this until later on, when they had a big meeting with Time Magazine, who was one of the clients at BBDNO, and somebody said, what do you think Time Magazine should put on the air if they were going to do a radio show? And I heard myself and somebody else echoing it, I think we both said it at the same time, I've forgotten who, said, dramatize the news. And so we invented a show called The March of Time, in which we simulated the voices of famous people. By 1940, Spear was working directly for CBS. That summer, the network broadcast a replacement series for the Lux Radio Theater called Forecast. Forecast was a weekly pilot show. Listeners wrote to CBS to let the network know which episodes they liked best. The most popular pilots could become their own series. On July 22, 1940, CBS Hollywood broadcast an adaptation of The Lodger about a London family that takes in a boarder they soon suspect to be Jack the Ripper. CBS called the episode Suspense. Two summers later, on June 17, 1942, Suspense premiered as its own show with a famous mystery by John Dixon Carr called The Burning Court. The Columbia Network takes pleasure in bringing you Suspense. Suspense. Stories from the world's great literature of pure excitement. A new series frankly dedicated to your horrification and entertainment. Week by week, from the pick of new material, 
from the pages of best-selling novels, from the theater of Broadway and London, and the sound stages of Hollywood, will parade the most remarkable figures ever known. CBS gives you suspense. Tonight's presentation is one of the finest of the contemporary stories of mystery and terror. John Dixon Carr's famous novel, The Burning Court. The first six productions were under the supervision of Charles Vanda. By late July, the series was turned over to Spear. Well, Bill, when did uh, suspense go on the air, and were you involved with it from the very first? I was not involved from the very first. The show was conceived by Charles Vanda, V-A-N-D-A, a very wonderful producer and great old friend, in California. And it came about in uh, 1940 as part of a series called Forecast, which CBS put on in the summer as a replacement for the Lux Radio Theater, which used to play 46 weeks a year, but took an eight-week hiatus. And up until then, they had just filled the show with anything that the network could find. But we came up with the idea of using that eight weeks as a, a testing ground, a pilot, it would be called today, a ground, for new shows, one of which was Suspense, another was Duffy's Tavern. Several shows were sold and went on into uh, getting well-known in radio. Some others fell by the wayside. Suspense. Presented by Roma Wines, made in California for enjoyment throughout the world. Salud. Your health, senor. The world toasts Roma, and Roma toasts the world. The wine for your table is Roma, made in California for enjoyment throughout the world. In January of 1943, production moved to Hollywood. Man in Black. Here for Roma Wines to introduce this weekly half hour of Suspense. Late in the year, in Roma Wines signed on as sponsor. The first Roma show was The Black Curtain on December 2nd, 1943, with guest star Cary Grant playing opposite Lorene Tuttle. For the next three years, Suspense gained traction with Spear at the helm. I grew up in the tradition of Arthur Conan Doyle and uh, H. Ryder Haggard, if you will, and, and all of the romantic, how will it come out, can she get away by midnight, people, rather than the planking chains of the purely ghost story. Not that suspense doesn't sometimes have an element of horror, or that horror doesn't have an element of suspense, but I did not specialize in the clanking chains. Began, or rather life began again for me, I guess you'd say, that day, on that street. My head was pounding terribly. I could hear all the noise and the people milling around. Everything was a jumble at first. Hollywood's best loved working for him. In fact, it was Cary Grant who said, if I ever do any more radio work, I want to do it on suspense, where I get a good chance to act. Like in On a Country Road, opposite Kathy Lewis. Something hit the back of the car. It's her. Is the door locked on your side? Yes. 
Well, what if she breaks the windows? She's got a cleaver. In that flash of lightning, I saw somebody. Is it the crazy woman? I can't tell. She's lying on the road. Can you see her? Is she still there? Too dark to see. Have to wait for the lightning. I saw her. She's getting up now. She'll kill us. She'll kill us. By 1946, Spear was one of the most respected men in radio. While he'd been focused on suspense, more than once he'd been offered a chance to direct a new show. He always said no, until he finally said yes. Back in the infantry again, and at Salina, Kansas, of all places, and I got orders to come to Hollywood. Are you ready for this? For the Armed Forces Radio Service. It was the talk of the whole division. <laughs> Dumb fool is going to Hollywood. And what was it like in the Armed Forces? This was a pioneering effort in those days. Uh, the Armed Forces Radio Service? For yes, that part of your career, yes. Well, actually, the they, didn't, on the they didn't really know what to do with people like myself. Who Actually, I was not a writer. Per se, I was not a producer, I was not a director. So Elliot Lewis and myself and Alan Hewitt and a couple of other people were put in charge of, uh, Elliot and I originally, we recorded regular commercial programs off the air and then we had to reassemble them because of censorship reasons, you know, in wartime, where certain things were verboten. And we reproduced them, as a matter of fact. That was our job. We, it was a separate department. We turned out an awful lot of programs a week. Howard Duff was born on November 24, 1913, in Washington State. After graduating from high school in Seattle, he began acting for local theater companies. Well, I started in drama school, I suppose. We called it oral expression, strangely enough, in high school. I got interested, I kind of got, got hooked, and we had a very fine uh, playhouse in Seattle called the Seattle Repertory Playhouse at that time. It isn't the same theater as the Seattle Repertory Theater now there. I worked in the daytime on a rather menial job. At a department store, and at night we obviously were rehearsing or playing a show. At, uh, we did all kinds of things uh, Ibsen, Chekhov, Shakespeare, Noel Coward, Odets. We wanted to do good things. I don't say that we always did them. Anyway, I, that's where I started. You and, wanted uh, to be an actor then? I decided that I wanted to uh, after I got involved in these things. I finally got into radio as a radio announcer. And, in uh, Seattle? In Seattle. Mm -hmm. I did news, I did everything finally gravitated down to San Francisco where I picked up a couple of jobs down there as a newscaster and whatnot mm -hmm. and kind of an extra announcer at one of the stations up there. Then I latched onto a kid serial called The Phantom Pilot of all things. This is before World War II. Mm -hmm. Remember, you started this. <laughs> We've only got, we haven't even gotten to World War II yet. <laughs> anyway, uh, I did this kid show for about two years, I suppose, and that went out, and then I did freelance work until World War II came along, and I went in the Army, and I was in the Army for about five years. During World War II, Duff worked for the Division of the Armed Forces Radio Service, in charge of recording and reassembling broadcasts.
suspense. For you men and women in the armed forces of the United Nations, we present one of America's top spine tinglers. A radio rebroadcast of a program dedicated to the mysterious, the unusual, and sometimes the supernatural. A program of suspense. Producer of suspense asks you to almost believe that the following is true. Very well. Standing beside me, surrounded by two guards, is a man who in a few short hours is to be put to death in the electric chair. When the war ended, Duff had to crack the West Coast circle of radio actors. How long was the Phantom pilot on the air, or in the air? About two and a half years, mm -hmm. as I remember. Mm -hmm. Then I, When I went off, then I starved for a little while, and Elliot Lewis helped me, uh, and finally I was able to crack this magic circle of uh, radio actors. They were rather tight. It was tight Should we say again. snobbish? I don't know. Yeah. And this is still prior to uh, the Second World War. Huh? This is prior to, to World War Deuce, yeah. Yeah, and there is this nucleus of actors on the West Coast that do 98% well, of the there work. Were, I would that... say roughly about the Magic 20, what was it, or something like that, who did most of the work. Yeah, like Hans Conrad and William Hans Conrad. Hans Conrad, oh, the whole bunch of guys. Frank Nelson, oh, yes, yes. Uh, Lou Merrill, Elliot Lewis, uh, Kathy Lewis, who was then his wife. Well, darling, where's your father? Oh, he's dashing madly around town trying to enlist. <laughs> of course, no one will have him. Well, 58's a little old. Um, Everett. Yes, sir. Everett, why won't you tell me what kind of work you do? I'd like to, you believe me, but I just can't. Well, if you'd only tell me what you're doing, just a little clue, anything to make Dad understand. Look, I've told you before, I do highly important work. It's strictly secret. All I can say is it has to do with electronics. But what By December of 1945, like now 32, he was landing gigs on shows like The Cavalcade of America's Direction Home, broadcast on December 3rd. Maybe years. Oh, here comes Dad. I think you'd better go. Oh, no. He's not going to scare me out today. Uh, no trouble, no argument. Ahoy, you there! Ahoy, yourself! You're sounding salty. Ah, well, I'm feeling right salty this evening. Dad. How do you like to get up? Dad, they accepted you. I thought <laughs> the Navy turned you down. Good evening, Mr. Swinney. Sure, the Navy did turn me down. But it's able seamen they're needing to sail the ships of the Merchant Marine. Merchant Marine? That's me, the Merchant Marine. Blow the land But rolls were still hard to come by. <laughs> Duff needed to land something big if he was going to make a name for himself in Hollywood. The Woody Herman Show! October 13, 1945, The Woody Herman Show took to ABC's airwaves. It was the third time the band leader had been given his own series. ABC sold the time to Wild Root Cream Oil through the sponsor's agency of record, BBDNO. All parties involved gave the show one season. Ratings peaked in February with just a 3.9. By the spring, the sponsored agency decided to cancel the program. However, they still wanted ABC's Friday night time slot. 
Simultaneously over at CBS, Chairman of the Board William Paley had begun to institute a packaged program initiative. Former CBS President Frank Stanton remembered that time. I suppose that the radio network really came into its own after World War II when we went very heavily into doing our own programs. Up until that time, almost all of the programs in the schedule were produced by outside organizations, bought by the advertiser, delivered to us by the advertising agency, and the advertiser was really in control of the schedule. When Mr. Paley came back from the war, he seized that opportunity to embark upon the development of our own programs, which would be owned by the company and sold to the advertiser. With that one concept and the implementation of it, network radio changed from an advertiser-dominated medium to a broadcaster-dominated medium. During World War II, comedy, drama, news, and variety dominated the radio dial. But after the war, detective shows gained network popularity as programming shifted to smaller studios. They were considered a good deal for advertisers. Well, Sam Spade is the detective of Dashiell Hammett. He is the hero of the Maltese Falcon. Right. The opening line in the Maltese Falcon of the novel is, my name is Sam Spade. How better writing can there be from Hammett? Because he doesn't fool around. There's no waste of time. Larry White, Lawrence White, who was Dashiell Hammett's agent for a great many years, had always wanted me to do Sam Spade in one way or the other, but I had always been too busy. But it came at the exact right moment somehow. One day he said, now how about Sam Spade? After I was well launched into suspense many years. And I said, sure, let's do it. Although Bill Spear was entrenched at CBS, he still had ties with BBDNO, his old agency, as well as with Lawrence White, Dashiell Hammett's literary agent. Both ABC and CBS wanted to bring the adventures of Sam Spade to the air. Initially, Bogart was wanted as star. The original plan had been first possibly to use Humphrey Bogart, who had played Sam Spade, of course, in the most famous version there ever will be of Sam Spade in movies. And Bogey perhaps would have been available. He would have cost us at that time $3,000 a week, which in radio was, and certainly is, big money. This whole Sam Spade show, the whole suspense show, never cost over five or $6,000. I said, no, I foresee adding all the things up on one side or the other, that it would be better for us to find an unknown and start with him, then be saddled to a star, great as he is, who's going to be going into movies, who's going to be back and forth, there's going to be trouble, he's going to leave for Africa when you want to do next week's show, and we didn't tape things then, there were no, uh, you had to do them live every week. Even with Humphrey Bogart's drawbacks, it was assumed no other actor could fill Spade's shoes. Auditions were held in April of 1946, Enter Howard Duff. I suppose we should begin at the beginning. I hadn't been out of the Army too long. They uh, had this audition for this, what we thought was going to be a pretty good show. And everybody in town, uh, all the so-called leading men, I guess, auditioned for it. And I was lucky. Apparently my quality, I, voice quality I had appealed to Bill and the sponsors, I suppose. And I got it anyway and went on for practically scale, but that didn't matter in those days. It was a good idea to do it. And then the show kind of gradually began to take off. And I found Howard Duff, who had played numerous parts in the cast of Suspense and other shows that I did. We did the audition, and it was sold, I think, within 48 hours. I was very hot, if I do say so, at the time, and they were waiting for a show from me, and Sam Spade got started. Academy Awards. 
Every week, Squibb brings you Hollywood's finest. The great picture plays, the great actors and actresses. Techniques and skills chosen from the honor roll of those who have won... An audition was recorded on May 1st. In June, Wild Root officially signed on as sponsor. Spade would make its debut in July over ABC's Airwaves. Not to be outdone on July 2nd, CBS broadcast an episode of Academy Award adapting the Maltese Falcon. Humphrey Bogart reprised his role. And now, E.R. Squibb and Sons, manufacturing chemist to the medical profession since 1858, bring you the distinguished star, Mr. Humphrey Bogart, who, as Best Actor of the Year, was nominated for the 1943 Academy Award. You will also hear Miss Mary Astor, who won the 1941 Academy Award as Best Supporting Actress of the Year, and Sidney Greenstreet, who was nominated for the 1941 Academy Award as Best Supporting Actor. Tonight, Mr. Bogart, Miss Astor, and Mr. Greenstreet will play the famous roles they created for the screen in The Maltese Falcon, the thrilling mystery which was nominated as Best Production of the Year for the 1941 Academy Award. My name is Spade, Sam Spade. License number 357896, issued for the Police Department of San Francisco. Occupation, private detective, sometimes known as private eye. My files in the case of the Maltese Falcon are closed, but I've got the Maltese Falcon. I got it, and some dough. My partner got murdered, and a very slick chick went up for life. I'll tell you about it. This slick dame comes to see me one day, gives me a song and dance about her sister and a guy called Floyd Thursby. She wants us to get her sister back before her mother and father get in from Hawaii. I put my partner, Miles Archer, on the case. At night, he gets murdered. And so does this guy, Thursby. I go round to the apartment where the dame is living, the one called Bridget O'Shaughnessy. <laughs> she had something I seemed to go for. Oh, ABC's version of Spade was starting behind the eight ball. It debuted 10 days later on Friday, July 12th, 1946. The hair-raising adventures of Sam Spade, detective. Brought to you by the makers of Wild Root Cream Oil for the hair. Sam Spade, Detective Agency. Hello, sweetheart. Sam, are you all right? Oh, I thought this time... I'm okay, sweetheart. Be right down to dictate my report. Stinker. Getting me all upset. I told you I'm all right, baby. But I gotta admit, it's been another hair raiser for Sam Spade. Satchel Hammett, America's leading detective fiction writer and creator of Sam Spade, the hard-boiled private eye... And William Spear, radio's outstanding producer-director of mystery and crime drama, join their talents to make your hair stand on end with The Adventures of Sam Spade. Presented each week by Wild Root Cream Oil, the non-alcoholic hair tonic that will put your hair back in place again, grooming it neatly, naturally, the way you want it. Lorene Tuttle played Effie. By 1946, she was one of radio's most renowned character actresses. Effie Perrine was not written the way I played her in the original Maltese Falcon. 
She was just as much of a wisecracker as Sam. She was almost a masculine or a female Sam. And I discussed this with Bill Spear, who directed the show and, of course, wrote it, really. He wrote it with the help of a lot of other people and some very fine writers were on it. Bill Tallman and Gil Dowd wrote it at the beginning. And he and I decided that it would enhance... Sam's character even more, making him more masculine, if Effie were very kind and sweet and good, and kind of a soft little creature, you know, just a dear, good little girl. And we were proving to everybody that he went around and made love to a million other girls, but he always came back to Effie. And that was the essence of my characterization. That was the sweetness on the show, because he was always kidding me terribly, and a lot of it was ad-lib, too. Whenever you're ready, Mr. Sade. Yeah, let's see. Uh, date, July 12, 1946, to Mrs. Gilmore. Subject, death of Bernard F. Gilmore. On June 15th, after lunch, I... Going too fast for you, Effie? You never go too fast for me, Sam. Stick to your book, sweetheart. Where was I? After a modest lunch on June 15th... Yeah, I, I was sitting in my office brooding. It had been a pretty slim month in the private eye business... The city of San Francisco had been hit by a vicious wave of honesty. But that morning, the Chronicle had a nice, juicy story on the killing of Bernard F. Gilmore. You remember him, the co-owner of the St. Kitts Steamship Lines? I read it carefully. Two weeks later, I received a call from the partner of the murdered man, a Mr. Emil Tonescu. He lived in Atherton on Old Oak Road, a very modest lean-to, occupying only 10 acres. He was sitting by the swimming pool... Wearing nothing but swim shorts and a highball. Forty-ish, Latin type with a lot of white teeth. Tight above his left ankle was a gold bracelet about two inches wide. It was quite thick and had no clasp. It had been welded on. And in the center, there was a small diamond. Uh, Mr. Spade, come here. Come here, sit down. Thanks. Drink? Thanks. Don't drown it. Nice pool you got here. This where you launch your ships? Uh, Mr. Spade, two weeks ago, my business partner was killed. Two weeks, and the police have done nothing. I want you to find the man who shot Bernard Gilmore. Hit you pretty hard, huh? Well, I, I am not a sentimental man, but Gilmore and I, we started our business with one Trump steamer. Then we immigrated to this country. I, I cannot forget our years as partner, and now... now yeah, let's see. An unidentified Gunzel held him up and shot him around midnight as he was leaving the St. Kitts steamship office on the Embarcadero. You could it, could it. His secretary, Miss Lena Best, was an eyewitness to the killing. She arrived at the scene in time to hear the shot, see Gilmore toppled backwards off the pier into the water. Yes. The killer dropped the hull when the night watchman threw a slug after him. 600 bucks, a 10-carat rock, solid gold ticker, right? Yes. The police found it on the pier. Did he own any money? Well, he had a rather large gambling debt at the Calypso Club. You say he immigrated with you to this country. I take it that Gilmore wasn't his real name. Uh, no, no. He changed a few years ago, after he started going with her. Who's her? His secretary. The one that was on the way to meet him when he was killed? Yes. Uh-huh. Who gets the insurance? The secretary, Lena Best. He wanted to marry her. She, she kept him dangling. He was getting tired of it. She knew that it could not go on. Who gets Gilmore's share of the St. Kitts Steamship Company? I do. Mm-hmm. Anything else? Oh, one thing more, Mr. Spade. It might help you. 
Gilmore always carried a good luck piece in his wallet, a rare coin. It was the only thing the killer did not leave behind. Yes? Well, it, it has some sentimental value for me now. I presented him with the coin when we formed our partnership. Uh, look here, Mr. Spade. Uh, here. Here's a picture of it in this little book. Tonescu handed me a thin book printed on very glossy paper. Six of the first 13 episodes were adapted from Hammett Originals. The rest were written by Bob Talman and Joe Isinger. ABC wanted listeners to believe Hammett wrote the scripts, so Talman and Isinger received no credit. Announcer Dick Joy recalled those first few weeks as a summer replacement at ABC. When the show began, as you know, it was on the ABC for about 13 weeks or so, and we worked out of a small studio, and uh, things were a little chaotic at times, and the cues were missed, and one thing or another. We wound up one show in rehearsal, it seemed to be a little short, they didn't want to add too much to it, so they had three Smokey the Bear public service announcements for me to read. One was about 45 seconds, and one was 30 seconds, and then there was the, the panic one, 15 seconds or something, and just before I went on the air, Bill was wandering around the studio, and he turned to me, he said, oh yes, about those Smokey the Bear things, if we ever get to them, which I hope we don't. Yeah, I'll give you one finger for the long one, two for the short, three for read the quick one and get off. So as it turned out, the actors expanded rather well on the show, and we not only didn't have any time for any Smokey the Bears, we also didn't have any time for much of anything. So when we got to the end, the orchestra came up loud, and then he faded them down, and he pointed to me, and at the same time he held up two fingers or something, and I looked at the clock in amazement. We'd done everything. We'd finished the credits, the sponsor ID, and everything else, and it was only five seconds left, and there was no time for Smokey the Bear and getting off on time, so I said, Dick Joy speaking, this is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company, and that was it. So the next week I came in, and I'm sure he timed this. Somebody probably tipped him off. He had his back to the door, and he was sitting around the cast table, and uh, as I opened the door, he said, you know, I have one observation about announcers. He said, they're all basically rather stupid. And he said, uh, all you have to do to prove it is, you know, like last week, just point your finger at him and he'll give his name. <laughs> the makers of Chase and Sanborn Coffee bring you the Charlie McCarthy Show. This is Ken Carpenter, ladies and gentlemen, greeting you on behalf of Edgar Bergen, Charlie McCarthy, Ray Noble and his orchestra, Anita Gordon, Mortimer Snurd, Jack Mather, Verna Felton, and our guest for this Sunday, W.C. Fields. And here's Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy. Charlie, why are you wearing those dark glasses? And what's the idea of that silly mustache? You're, uh... You're mistaking me for someone else, sir. I am Maximilian J. Hecklefeather. Well, just what's the idea of this get-up, Charlie? And stop calling me Charlie, Bergen. I mean, stranger. Even though CBS had done its best to offset Duff's version of Spade, they immediately saw potential in the series. In the September 23rd issue of Broadcasting Magazine, it was announced that Wildroot would stay on as sponsor while the program shifted networks to CBS in the fall. Meanwhile, at the National Broadcasting Company, 
Edgar Bergen's Chase and Sanborn program had been entrenched on Sunday evening since 1937. Although the program remained in radio's top 10, their ratings had tapered off while other programs grew. CBS felt that Bergen's act had gone stale and saw an opportunity to make inroads in NBC's Sunday night rating stronghold. They programmed Spade opposite the comedian. The Adventures of Sam Spade made its CBS debut on Sunday, September 29, 1946, at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. On December 5th, with Suspense's rating cresting at 17.3, Spear used his show as a vehicle to drive listeners to Spade during one of the most memorable episodes in Suspense history, The House in Cypress Canyon. Suspense! Merry Christmas, Jerry. How's the real estate business? Oh, kind of early with your greeting, aren't you, Sam? Well, I got to get them in sometime. I may not see you again until next Christmas. If this real estate racket gets any crazy, I'll be dead by next Christmas. <laughs> I'm glad you could get up here, though, Sam. What's on your mind, Jerry? Uh, you, you'll probably shoot me when you hear it, Sam, because I'm probably nuts. But, but doggone it, you're a detective and you're my pal, and I just had to tell somebody. Well, you sound like it's serious. That's just it. I, I don't know what it is, Sam, but... Now, listen, you, you know we're agents for a group of houses up in Cypress Canyon. Mm -hmm. Those places that were started before the war never got finished. Oh, yeah. All they got in were the foundations, just mm -hmm. concrete and a couple of beams. Well, they've been finished now. In fact, I'm putting up the for rent on the last of them today. What do you want? Police protection from the mob? <laughs> listen, Sam, this house that I'm talking about, it's got a number now, uh, 2256. But before, when the men went back to work on it about three months ago... Well, they just started when the foreman on the job brought me a shoebox that he'd found up on a beam. And this box had a, a what do you call it, a, a manuscript in it, a story, kind of, all written out. Yeah. Well, he gave me the thing. I read it. I didn't think much about it. I put it in my desk. But the other day, and I happened to drive by there, I saw the number on the house and what the house looked like. I thought of this manuscript. And, well, I don't like it, that's all. There's something funny about it. Well, what's funny about it? Well, I, Mind you, this thing was found in an unfinished house in Cypress Canyon. House that was only just started building. All right. uh, well, listen, Sam, I want to read it to you if you got the time, and you'll see what I mean. All right, shoot. <clears throat> well, here's how it begins. Uh, to whom it may concern, my reasons for setting down on paper what follows here will be abundantly clear. Will be abundantly clear to anyone into whose possession it may fall. Oh yeah, yeah, I did quite a few of those. As I remember once I got to know Bill. You know, he was kind of like that. If he mm -hmm. liked you, you worked. You know, they weren't really paying me that much so that I should just specialize on spades, so I had to do other things. But when we readjusted my contract... <laughs> yeah, you know. they got a scale. There's nothing in the past life of either one of us to suggest remotely any cause or reason for the dreadful thing that has invaded our lives. At first, CBS's idea seemed like a mistake. For the next four months, Bergen's rating averaged 26.3, and spades was 9.6. But then something funny happened. As the weather warmed, Bergen's rating fell four points. The Adventures of Sam Spade, Detective. Rather than follow suit, beginning with the ironically titled February 2nd, 1947 episode, The Dead Duck Caper, Spade's rating jumped two points. Effie? 
Effie. Effie. Oh. I waited. Say what you have to say and I'll go. You've been through a tough time, sweetheart. Well, you didn't make it any easier. You think it was a cakewalk for me? You think my nerves are made of rubber? You have no nerves. You're just a cold, callous old detective. You're going to listen to me. You're going to sit still, not talk, and listen. I when I've finished, you can say goodnight or goodbye. But first, you're going to listen to me. You remember how it started? Yesterday evening, when you told me it was your mother's birthday, you were giving a party, you said, and you wanted me to come? In March, Talman and Isinger won an Edgar Award for writing radio's best mystery. Simultaneously, Howard Duff made his film debut in Brute Force, produced by the famed Mark Hellinger. It gave CBS hope for the fall. You uh, were introduced on the screen in the film Brute Force... Yeah. As Radio Sam Radio Spade. Radio Sam Spade, yeah. Right up in the credits. That sort of annoyed me at the time because I just thought they should just let me come on as Howard Dunn and let it go with that. But as I look back on it, why, why knock it? What the heck? <laughs> that was it. If it'll bring a, a few more people into the box office, great. That was a good motion picture debut. Was that indeed the first time That's you appeared? That's the first time I was ever in the... Well, I did a training film for the Army, but that, you know, can't <laughs> count that. Here in my pocket, a bottle of... I have a wonderful idea. It'll make the party one big... Are you new to old-time radio? A hardcore fan? Curious, but don't know where to start? Try the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to the great horror, crime, and suspense shows from the golden age of radio, including tales from Suspense, Lights Out, Quiet Please, The Shadow, and more. Each episode features a classic or maybe not-so-classic story from the old-time radio vault, complete with historical notes and trivia. At the end of each podcast, your mysterious old hosts, Tim, Joshua, and Eric, discuss the merits of the story and decide whether or not it stands the test of time, balancing insight and humor to make you think harder about what made these old shows so great, even when they aren't so great. The Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society is available everywhere you get your podcasts, as long as you get your podcasts from iTunes or Podbean. For more information about the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, or to download episodes directly, visit ghoulishdelights.com. And now back to Breaking Walls. The Sam Spade Show, when after a while, I think about the second year, I got involved with the Red Skelton Show. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't stay there to do the, the Sam Spade Show. So I would have to put our opening, dear little opening scene and our closing scene on um, record. And we would put that on during rehearsal and then I'd go and do the Red Skelton Show. So I really wasn't there for the actual showing. They would just put my part on. Uh -huh. In other words, when the show... We I would start to rehearse the spade show at 10 in the morning. Then I think we went on at 5 to 5.30 here, mm -hmm. and then probably later repeat, transcription record repeat. So about 2, I had to go over to the skeleton show. So they, between 1 and 2, and the others were sent out to lunch, Howard would stay there with me, and we would tape my opening and closing stuff. And I have those. I bought oh, really? those little records. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So I have them. 
I love to hear it, Effie and Sam. Oh, it's, they're the most adorable love scenes ever written in the history of show business, uh, I think. Sam Spade, Howard Duff, uh, remembers the license number of his car. 37596. Uh, you, you can't forget fit. it either. No, sir. <laughs> The Adventures of Sam Spade, Detective, brought to you by Wild Root Cream Oil Hair Tonic, the non-alcoholic hair tonic that contains lanolin. Wild Root Cream Oil, again and again, the choice of men who put good grooming first. Sam Spade, Detective Agency. It's me, sweetheart. Risen from not one, but two deathbeds. Oh, Sam, I bet not. You wouldn't take that line down. Oh, Effie, you made a joke. Well, you did first, Sam. I did not. Oh, you mean you actually Now, don't pin me down. Anyway, I was present at two dying declarations. Would you believe, Effie, that a man could say something that wasn't true at a time like that? Oh, no. You mean a man would be lying on his deathbed? Oh. Effie, you made a joke. Oh, Sam, now stop it. I don't know it's what you It's all mean. right, Effie. I forgive you. You can atone by telling me how wonderful you think I am. I think you're... That you may do when I arrive in a trice to dictate my report on the deathbed caper. Dashiell Hammett, America's leading detective fiction writer and creator of Sam Spade, the hard-boiled private eye, and William Spear, radio's outstanding producer-director of mystery and crime drama... Join their talents to make your hair stand on end with the adventures of Sam Spade. Presented by the makers of Wild Root Cream Oil for the hair. Tell me, mister, how many times a day do you have to comb your hair? The radio networks opened the fall of 1947 with a sense that history was in the making. Nearly 11 million babies had been born in the U.S. since the end of World War II. Movie attendance bombed as young parents stayed home with their children. Homes with radios jumped 6%, car radios 29%. It would prove to be the highest rated season in radio history. Network revenue topped $200 million. Spade opened the season running almost neck and neck with Bergen. Although Bergen averaged a 21.5 rating in October, Spade's rating jumped to 19.2. Many brave hearts are asleep in the deep. Captain Sam, there's the brig for you. You got your logbook handy, gal? Oh, yes, Captain. So beware. You make it that's awful deep. Be. Oh. Uh, date, June 20th, 1948. Where? Oh, Sam. I have no shame. To uh, Marin County Sheriff's Office, San Rafael, California. Attention, Deputy Woodington from Samuel Spade, license number 137596. Subject, the uh, deathbed caper. Dear Bill, the uh, dawn came up like thunder out of Chinatown across the bay. In San Francisco, all we could see was fog. But on your side, it must have lifted briefly because somebody named Dan Starbuck managed to find his way to a phone booth, call me, and ask me to meet him at the 3rd Street Pier in Sausalito. I didn't see him when I first got there. I didn't even see the pier. It was too foggy. 
And in the glow of the neon lights in front of the Viking saloon, I saw a man who seemed to be waiting for somebody. He was a big guy with a good face, but plenty of worry on it. Mr. Spade? Yeah, Mr. Starbuck? Dan Starbuck. Come on down to the end of the pier. I'll explain as we go along. We've got to hurry. You act hot. You want it for something? Why? Well, not yet. What's the caper? Well, it... my brother's out there on his yacht, the Marguerite. He's dying. When he's dead, they may call it murder. I want to be there with a the witness. That's you. In case he has anything to say about who did it. Who did? They think I did. Did you? Well, honestly, I don't know. It happened the night before last. I went out there to see him. We've hated each other for years. We've both been drinking, and we drank some more. Then there was a fight. I drew a blank somewhere. Next thing I knew it was around midnight. I pulled myself together, went into his cabin. Gordon was lying there with his head all kicked. I realized I was covered with blood, and I was holding something in my hand, big glass paperweight. I dropped it. I got out of there fast and swam ashore. I planned to tell you a different story, but that's it. You want the job or not? You think you'll make a deathbed statement that'll clear you and you want me for a witness? Yeah, that's it. You got a lot of guts. I'm hired. Good. Uh, Halverson? You down there? Halverson! Who's Halverson? Uh, he's a boatman. He'll row us out. Halverson? Hey, Nils? Danny? Yeah. Is that you, Casino? Sure. Can I do you some favor? I want to go out to the Marguerite. I can't find Halverson anywhere. Well, I guess I can take you. Are you sure that yeah, you... I'm sure. Uh, uh, Sam Spade, Del Casino. He's the boss of the Marguerite. Glad to meet you. Same. Any friend of Danny's. Hey, listen, Danny, you sure you want to go out there? Any reason why you shouldn't? Well, it's up to him. In his place, I would be on a freighter for China, way out there where the fog is more thicker. No, it's all right, Casino. I know what I'm doing. Well, uh, your friend, you, you excuse me, your name? Spade. You pardon me, I better ask. The police don't want you for nothing? Not yet, but don't make book on it. Uh, push us clear, Danny. This fog is closing in. But I can still see the lights from the Marguerite. I wish we don't find her. But we did. She was wearing clam diggers, an off-the-shoulder T-shirt, and was leaning against the rail as the dinghy pulled past the police launch and nestled in under the ladder of the yacht. Dell? Dell, is that you? Yes, Mr. Starbuck. Who is that with you? Keep quiet. Dell. Dell, what are they saying ashore about... Oh, I, I thought you... You're Mrs. Starbuck? Yes? I'm Sam Spade. I'm from San Francisco. I'm a detective. Your brother-in-law's in the boat. You captured him? He wants to come aboard. He wants to? Why? He's hoping your husband will say something to clear him before he dies. Is there any reason why he shouldn't come aboard? Oh, there's every reason in the world why he shouldn't. The police are in there with my husband right now. Yeah? The doctor says there's a possibility that he may regain consciousness long enough to make a dying declaration. Mm-hmm. If... If he's face to face with Dan, there's no telling what he'll say. I wish Dan wouldn't... My, my husband is dying. Dan? Yeah, what'd she say? I don't know, but I think you'd better come aboard. He seemed almost delighted as he swung his weight up out of the dinghy and climbed the ladder. 
Del Casino, the bosun, followed, wearing a puzzled expression that turned to fear as we entered the cabin. The yellow glare from the lamp swinging overhead was almost blinding to walk into out of the foggy night. The first thing I focused on was the bunk that held the dying man. His head was heavily bandaged, his skin was chalk white, and his lips were beginning to turn blue. The room was tense with waiting. Ranged around him in a semicircle were the supporting players. Two doctors, one family type with a nurse, one police medic without, one sheriff with cigar, one police stenographer, female with pencil and notebook poised, nine-tenths of a widow, and us. At 18 minutes past seven, somebody moved. It was the dying man. The two doctors rushed forward, took his pulse and blood pressure. Miss Scott, adrenaline 3 cc, chlamine 1, saline solution. Oh. All right, Sheriff, he's conscious now, but uh, you'd better hurry. All right, Ah, uh, Mr. Starbuck, you can hear me all right? Mm-hmm. Take that down. Can you hear me? Affirmative answer. Now, Mr. Starbuck, we have to ask these questions. One, what is your name? Please try to answer. What is your name? Gordon M. Starr. You got that? What is your name, Gordon M. Starr? That's close enough. Fill it in later. Now, Mr. Starbuck, where do you live? Uh, where do you live? I'm dead. You got that? 1277 Marymount, Pasadena. Hey. Now, Mr. Starbuck, let's try a little harder. Hmm? This is a long one. Have you been injured? And what was the cause of your injury? Yes. Hurts, man. You got that? Affirmative. Now, the second part. What was the cause of your injury? Head. Huh? Head on head. Uh, do you believe that you're about to die as a result of your injuries and have you no hope of recovery? I know. No hope. Uh, uh, now, let's get to the point. Who inflicted said injuries? Mr. Starbuck, please, you haven't much time, you know. Go away. Doc, is there anything you can do? I'm afraid not. This is ghastly. Can't you leave him alone? Can't you let him die in peace? What are you afraid of, Maggie? What are you afraid he'll say? All right. All right, tell them, Gordon. It was Dan that struck you, wasn't it? He was jealous. He always hated you for marrying me. It was dead. Now, 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 Mrs. Starbuck, I know how you feel, but we can't allow this sort of thing. Please step aside so we can finish up here. That's it. Mr. Starbuck. Doctor? Uh, very low pulse. I'm not sure. Dan. Whether... Dan. Is Dan here? Here I am, Gordon. Tell him. Tell him the truth. Do you identify this man, Mr. Starbuck? Yes. He's my brother. You got that? Brother Dan, he's... He's the one. He's lying. Gordon, you know who did it. Why don't you tell the truth? What do you got to lose now? Nothing. Nothing. I'm finished. You got that? You finished me. Gordon! Uh, Gordon, not yet. uh, I'll come back. uh, Doctor, can't you... He's dead. Well... Okay, Doc. Dennis Starbuck, it is my duty as sheriff of this county to take you into custody on suspicion of murder. And I must tell you that anything you say may be held against you. You'd better come along too, Spade. Routine questioning, you know. Okay, Sheriff. Well, I don't think we'll need the handcuffs, will we, son? No, I'll go with you. Okay. 
Yes, indeed, son. It's always smart to come along quietly. Yeah. But this is as far as I'm going. Hey, Dan, come back here. Use your head. had one friend. It was the best friend in the world for a man on the land, the fog. The searchlights on the police launch spun frantically as the craft heeled around in a half circle to head him off. Instead of cutting the fog, the beams from the powerful lights bounced back from it and blinded the men behind them. After ten minutes of that, they gave up. The sheriff had a theory. Ah, uh, don't worry. Between the fog and the currents, I doubt if we'll make it. We'll probably recover the body in the morning. And they did. But it wasn't Dan Starbuck's body. It was the bosun, Del Casino. And he was found in Richardson Bay, adrift in the dinghy from the Marguerite. Somebody had creased his skull with the same type blunt instrument that had been used on Gordon Starbuck. But Dell hadn't lived long enough to make a dying declaration. The makers of Wild Root Cream Oil are presenting the weekly Sunday adventure of Dashiell Hammett's famous private detective, Sam Spade. Here's important news on good grooming. If you want the well-groomed look that helps you get ahead socially and on the job, listen. I think it was probably the first program of its kind that attempted to do something more than just the slam bang, boom, boom. He was a character. He was a definite character who had a great eye for the girls. We'd always open the show. You could hear the bottles clinking and the thing, and he'd pour himself a snort, you know, before he'd do his uh, dictation to Effie. The whole attitude, I don't think, had ever been uh, explored the way we did, or the, the way that Bill uh, really brought about, because this is his, believe me, his conception and his production was impeccable, as I think you will agree, uh, Ed. Uh, he oh, yes. played a great deal of attention, not only to the stories, but uh, and to what we said. What we said was terribly important. He had a, His big hero was Dickens. Did he ever tell you that? No, I don't think he well, did. No, he tried to have get a Dickensian feeling about the interesting people that we had. He, he was a, you know, he, he insisted. And now back to Caper with Two Deathbeds. Tonight's adventure with Sam Spade. Police theory of the Del Casino killing went something like this. Casino had shoved off in the dinghy to join in the search for Dan Starbuck, had rescued him, and been maced for his pains. Also found in the dinghy, but not as yet worked into the police theory, were two items. One, a waterproof wallet containing the seaman's papers of one Nils Halverson. Two, a tattoo mark on the right bicep of the deceased. A small heart with a name in it, Maggie. The brand-new widow of the same name was waiting in my office when I got there the following afternoon. Hello. Hello to you, Mrs. Starbuck. What can I do for you? Mr. Spade, I... I know very little about the ethics of your profession, and... Well, are... Are you still working for Danny? If you mean, do I know where he is, the answer's no. Oh. I hoped you'd say that. Why? Because I want you to work for me. Need a new bosun? You needn't have put it quite so crudely. No, I needn't. Since your work is confidential, I'll admit I've... I've done a few things that... Well, it's all too true. 
My first mistake was marrying Gordon Starbuck when I didn't love him. And I should never have let myself fall in love with Dan. I certainly should have known better than to let Dell fall in love with me. What about Nels Halverson? And me? Well, hardly. No. Nils Halverson was employed by my husband for various odd jobs whenever we put in at Sausalito. Mostly, he'd row the guests out to the ship. He rowed Danny out the night my husband was killed. At least, I think he did. I didn't actually see him. Where's Halverson now? I don't know. He, he goes off on drunks for days at a time, but, but... But I have a feeling that someone has paid him to disappear. He... He might have overheard something. Hold on a minute. You're going too fast. Are you uh, working up to a confession? Oh, no. It's it's just that I'm afraid a great injustice may have been done to Danny. After all, Mr. Spade, a man who's dying, I I don't see how he could be altogether in his right mind. Do you? The law says he is if he knows his name and address. A deathbed accusation is the strongest evidence a lawyer can shove at a jury. You can't cross-examine a dead man, and most people have the quaint idea that a man on his deathbed is a lot more truthful than he was when he was hale and hearty. Then you think Gordon may have been lying? Could be, or wool-gathering, or picking up some of the lines you were feeding him. Oh, I, I was just afraid he might die before he... You, you see, I thought I might shock him into saying yes or no. He, he could have said no, couldn't he? Well, make up your mind. Oh, all I know is it's on my conscience now. If we could find old Halverson and force him to tell what he knows. He's a very strange man. He's devoted to me. If, if the police find him before I do, he, he might refuse to talk out of a mistaken loyalty. To you? Well, I, I meant if he thought I had anything to do with the... Well, he's very strange. I told you that. What makes you so sure he's alive? Oh, why wouldn't he be? If I'd been the killer and he'd rode me to and from the scene of my crime, I'd see him secured in Davy Jones' locker. Fish feed, lobster bait, asleep in the deep. Will you work for me? I'll let you know. I didn't have time to get tattooed, but the rest of me was marinated enough. On my head, I was wearing a dirtied-up yachting cap. And the rest of me, I was wearing a pea jacket, dungarees, and sea boots. I was also wearing clamshell number five as I rolled up to the Viking saloon. Well, what did it be, mate? Uh, Akavit and Vakta. Uh, have you seen my cousin? Your cousin? Who's your cousin, Prince Valiant? Uh, no, my cousin, Niels Halverson. Niels Halverson. Oh, no. You're Niels' cousin, mm, are you? Yeah. Well, uh, coming from the old country? Yeah, uh, Minnesota. Uh, by you, Minnie. Well, no, he'll be right glad to see you there. Uh, where uh, fair is he? I'll, uh, <clears throat> I don't want to say this too loud. Yeah. Bend over there. Yeah. He's in trouble, you know. Oh. Yes, I got him holed up down below. Oh. Yeah, come on, come on. Well, by golly, I sure been glad to be going to see my cousin Niels. <laughs> Niels Halverson. Drop the act and get down there. Hey! Okay, Joe, I'll take over from here. Easy, easy. Okay, Danny, my boy. I got his gun. Well, watch him now, watch him. He's full of smorgasbord. Well, Spade, you're the one person I didn't expect to see. But I'm very glad to. Yeah, I wish I hadn't found you. I wanted to find somebody else first. Halverson? Yeah. He's here. Want to see him? That's what I came for. And under here. Watch your head, low bridge. Yeah. Hey, here we are. Where? A boathouse under the pier. 
Harvison used to hole in here to sleep off his schnapps. Where's he now? Over here. Uh-huh. Yeah, he's going to be a long time sleeping this one off. He'd been missing since that night. Nobody knew he was here till last night. I headed for the saloon when I swam ashore. Joe hid me out here. He could still talk then. What'd he say? I wrote it down here. But it's no help. Let's see it. Well, it's just a jumble of words. Uh, Marguerite. Marguerite. Merry Christmas drink. My beautiful Helga. Row, row your boat. Now throw me back. Row me back. Twenty dollars good and drunk. Mm. Fog rolling in. Good and drunk. Gonna be five days, no business. Oh, my head. Paint the boat. Oh, crazy stuff. Twenty dollars. Uh, did you give him twenty bucks to row you I out? I didn't even see him. I swam out. My loving brother wouldn't have let me on board if he'd heard me arriving like a gentleman. Twenty bucks. Did you frisk him? No. I'll have a look. Oh, I don't... Hey, wait. Uh-huh. Real soggy, but a 20. I don't care. I'm sticking to my story. I swam out there. I didn't give him that 20. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you didn't. You gotta believe me. I didn't even have 20 bucks. That's why I Shut got... Shut up. What's the matter with you? What are you gonna do? Come over here, Dan. I don't believe a word of your story, and even if I did, it wouldn't make any difference. What are you... Shut up. You're going to stop talking and listen for a while. I stuffed a gag into his mouth and muscled him over to a piling and handcuffed him to it. He didn't even look surprised. He just stood there staring at me as if he'd lost his last friend in the world. But I wasn't looking at him as much as I was listening to those footsteps in the boards overhead. I waited for them to come back. They did. I walked across the soggy planks to where Nils Halverson lay in the shadows. Nils, I want you to answer these questions again. Now, this time, I'm going to take them down. You get lots of $20 and lots of drink. Now then, I know you don't feel so good. You don't have to talk if you don't feel like it. Just nod your head for yes and shake it for no. Okay, Nils? That counts in a court of law as long as there's a witness. Okay. Now... Your name is Nils Halverson. Your address is 213 Bayview Sausalito. That's correct, is it? Nod your head. Good. Good. That proves you're in your right mind. You know you were injured. Yeah. You know the cause of your injury. Hit on the head and thrown over the side of your boat. What? Huh? Not from... Oh, dinghy. Well, it's the same thing. All right. Now, you know you're dying, you have no hope of recovery. That's obvious, but nod your head. That's the boy. Now, uh, Nils, on the night of the 18th, around 10 o'clock, after your usual working hours, you rowed somebody out to the yacht Marguerite in return for which this person gave you a $20 bill. This person is also the person who killed, who, in, who inflicted your fatal injuries. It is. Now, uh, the name of that person, if you can possibly speak even in a whisper, so there can be no mistake. Can you hear me? Just say it close to my ear. Yeah? Yes. Yes, I got it. That's all. Now, I know you don't write, Nils, but make your mark here. Come on, I'll guide your hand. There. Now we're going to take... Nils. Nils! Well, anyway... All right, Maggie, come on in and join the party. Uh, don't try anything. The light's on you. 
I'm a better shot than you, and if there's a ruckus, the whole saloon will be down on us. They're all friends of Danny's, too. Stop there. Toss the gun. Okay. What's the matter, Angel? You look kind of scared. No. Just disappointed, that's all. Don't give up so easy, sweetheart. I always wanted to take a trip around the world. We might go on the Marguerite. Together. Yeah. Yeah, sailing into the sunset. Sleeping with our deathbed statements under each other's pillows. I see what you mean. I guess it wouldn't work. How much for yours, and what do we do about him? Dan? I'll take care of that. Throw it in with a deal. Okay. But I want it in writing. A little statement to the effect that I can keep under my pillow. Fair enough. Now, all I want from you is a little statement from you to this effect. That you, Marguerite Starbuck, employed Nils Halverson to row you out to the yacht on the night of the 18th, that you there overheard a quarrel between your husband and brother-in-law, and that taking advantage of said brother-in-law's inebriated condition, you sneaked up behind your husband, hit him with a paperweight, and decamped, leaving the murder weapon in Dan's hand. You then started back to shore in the dinghy, and realizing that the only witness who could testify you were aboard that night... All right, all right. All right, I'll sign it. Okay. We'll have plenty of time to put in all the legal decorations later. I'm afraid we won't, baby. You're going to be spending all your available time at the Hatchapi and points west. What are you talking you about? You just made a full confession in front of a witness. You heard it, didn't you, Dan? Every word. Oh, we're fight. Honest. An honest man. Well, I did tell a fib. Now, this is really going to hurt, I'm afraid, Maggie. You see, we didn't actually have any deathbed statement to match yours. No? No. Nils Halverson was a good deal too dead to have made a deathbed statement just now. He's been stiff for 12 hours. Uh, period and a report. Well, Sam, I'll type this right up because then I'm leaving. Wait a minute, Effie. I had to do it that way. Don't you understand? Of course, Sam. I quite understand. But you object, huh? A cruel, ruthless, murdering, though beautiful woman, foiled by a clever ruse, a great acting performance by the greatest private detective of them all. Is that all? You're still leaving? Yes, Sam. My bags are packed. Well, pardon me for having feet. After struggling in its first season on CBS, The Adventures of Sam Spade jumped into Sunday night's top ten. Although Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy won their time slot, Spade's rating peaked in January of 1948, with a 22.6. Roughly 20 million people were tuning in each week. On Sunday, June 20th, 1948, Spade got involved in the deathbed caper. During the time of the year when radio audiences were noticeably smaller thanks to summer activities, Spade still had roughly 12 million listeners. The deathbed caper featured Hollywood radio legends William Conrad, Elliot Reed, Lou Krugman, Kathy Lewis, and Elliot Lewis, who by 1948 was acting in script editing all over the dial. Well, I remember a Sunday. Remember John Nesbitt's Passing Parade? Oh, sure. Well, we used to do the Benny show from that studio on Melrose that I described from 4 to 4.30 to the east. And Nesbitt's Passing Parade was at CBS, which is eight and a half blocks away from 4.30 to 5. I was on both shows one week. It never occurred to me that my car wouldn't start, Mm. that I might have an accident, that I, in one script, had a part where I was playing the mully, and I was going to drive during closing commercial, system cue, and opening commercial on the Nesbitt show. 
to CBS to walk in and play Dr. Semmelweis, the man who discovered and cured childbed fever. Hmm. Never occurred to me that there was a problem, that there might be a problem, that it was impossible. When you're young and stupid, you can do almost anything. <laughs> you know, it, something is only dangerous and uh, foolhardy and could be difficult if you have the brains to know it. If you don't know it, you just go ahead and do it. So I suppose when I was doing Remley, I was doing Remley. You do Remley, and when I picked up the script on suspense to work with Judy, then I'm playing that kind of a guy. There's a reason, men. In fact, there are five big reasons why more men every day are turning to Wild Root Cream Oil for well-groomed hair. Wild Root Cream Oil grooms your hair neatly and naturally. Wild Root Cream Oil relieves dryness and removes loose dandruff. Wild Root Cream Oil is non-alcoholic and contains soothing lanolin. Five big reasons why you, too, should join the millions with handsome, well-groomed hair. Why you should step up to your drug or toilet goods counter and ask for Wild Root Cream Oil. Get the big economy bottle and the handy new tube that's easy to pack when you travel and just right for the office or plant. Also, ask your barber for a professional application of Wild Root Cream Oil Hair Tonic. Again and again, the choice of men who put good grooming first. Well, here it is, Sam. Goodbye. Now, wait a minute, Effie. You can't leave like this, not without... Oh, all right. I'll talk to you while I'm putting my hat on. Well, can't you at least look at me? After all, you should give me a chance to justify... Sam, my... apparently you're laboring under an apprehension. Of course I am. Oh, boy, am I glad I picked the last in June and the first in July. What are you talking about? My vacation. Vacation? You just had a vacation a few months back. Well, Sam, that's a year. Well, if you want to take advantage of a legal technicality... Now, Sam, don't say goodbye, man. Well, it... Well, it's customary, I suppose. It's... it's lucky that some of us keep our nose to the grindstone, our ear to the ground... An eye to the future. Huh? Television's just around the corner, you know. Oh, Sam. <laughs> Come here, sweetheart. You look lovely in it. Come here. Have a wonderful time. <laughs> oh, Sam. Oh, Sam. Come here. <gasps> now go on. You miss your train. Uh, where are you going? The Los Sierras. Well, just so you don't go to Canab, Utah. All right, Sam. You know best. Good, good night. Good night, Sierra Sue. Now, who can we get for that part next week? For Bill Spear, Sam Spade was a welcome change of pace. When you know suspense was in its great era, which was roughly 1946 up through about 1953, was when they were attracting major Hollywood stars to that show. The Hollywood stars would come in and they would be very nervous with Bill Spear because, from what I've heard, he didn't encourage uh, a lot of rehearsing and wouldn't even allow it because he wanted them to be spontaneous and fresh on the air. Well, we certainly had that with the cast of Sam Spade, but they were pros, the best pros you could find. And most of them worked for scale, which was under $100 in those days, but they did it for love as much as anything else. You know, he used to say such a cute thing. I used to ask questions on the show, mm -hmm. I mean on the rehearsal, uh, for real, because I'm always saying, I don't understand this plot. I would always say to somebody, Howard or Bill Spear or somebody, I don't understand this plot. 
So they got to saying, down, Effie. Down, Effie. <laughs> and that's how that phrase got started. It was a real thing, you know. Shut up, Effie. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. While Effie Perrine got her summer vacation, the adventures of Sam Spade kept broadcasting right through to the fall. Joe Isinger had departed from the writing team in March of 1947. Gil Dow joined Bob Talman until 1949, when writers like John Michael Hayes and E. Jack Newman came in. There was one marathon situation that came up, oh, about in April. Now remember, programs were on the air then every week of the year. And Bill came to John Michael and I and said that they were planning on taking three months off and going to Europe and everywhere else for the summer. And could we and would we supply them with scripts for that time so they could transcribe them (laughs) (laughs) and play them for that 13 weeks? I think we were paid $500 a script. Of course, that meant we had to write. At one point, we were writing one script a day, one for the broadcast, two for the transcription, plus the suspense, and so on. But I remember for one month there, we wrote seven scripts a week Hmm. between us. Wow. I remember at that time, we wrote all those scripts, and they were... They transcribed them and, and, you know, and they were ready to play and everything, and everything happened, but uh, we didn't get our money. How come? Well, why did the you... way they ran that corporation at the time, it was the Regis Radio Corporation, now defunct, long defunct. And I remember we were chasing them all over the New York City and, and environments trying to get our money uh, for the program. The Adventures of Sam Spade, Detective, brought to you by Wild Root Cream Oil Hair Tonic, the non-alcoholic hair tonic that contains lanolin. Wild Root Cream Oil, again and again, the choice of men who put good grooming first. Office of Samuel Spade, Private Investments. I mean, investigations. Good morning. Uh, evening. Effie? Miss Perrine is on a vacation. Perhaps I may be of assistance, no doubt. I don't know. To whom am I speaking to? I am sorry. I cannot devolve that information to an entire stranger. May I take a message? Look, uh, Miss Whoever you are, I don't want to discommode you, but... I I am sorry, but I will have to ask you in no certain terms to resist from this line you are handing me. I am not the type secretary. Forget it. I'll just call Miss Perrine long distance and dictate my report over the phone. <gasps> oh, my stars and God, how utterly gouge of me, Mr. Spade. Oh, I'm Bernadine, Effie's relief. I-, I mean yours. I could use some. Oh, shall I send out for some medicine? Yeah. The phone number's on the wall behind the water cooler. Tell them the hundred proof bonded and hang the expense. I'll be right down to dictate my report on the bail bond caper. <laughs> Dashiell Hammett, America's leading detective fiction writer and creator of Sam Spade, the hard-boiled private eye, and William Spear, radio's outstanding producer-director of mystery and crime drama, join their talents to make your hair stand on end with the adventures of Sam Spade. Presented by the makers of Wild Root Cream Oil for the hair. 
Only three days left, gals, and June, the month of weddings, will be over. But don't worry, there are still 187 days left in leap year, still time to snag the man of your dreams. You know, the one who uses wild root cream oil on his hair. He and millions of other men use wild root cream oil daily because wild root cream oil grooms the hair so neatly and naturally, relieves dryness, and removes loose dandruff. Any smart man who wants to look smart always insists on wild root cream oil hair tonic. Again and again, the choice of men who put good grooming first. And now, with Howard Duff starring as Spade, Wild Root brings to the air the greatest private detective of them all in the adventures of Sam Spade. Yes, but why? It was faith. I knew it was going to be like this. I had my qualms too, Bernadine. Oh, that's good. I I sent the other back. The other what? I called that number, but it was euphonious. They sent whiskey. Is something the matter? Uh, No, no, nothing at all. I'm perfectly qualm. Well, I'm glad. My previous employer was very nervous, which is why I just happened to be tentatively at large when Effie reproached me about being a relief to her. Figures. Uh, Bernadine, now I'm not being fresh. Honestly, I'm not, but do you take shorthand? Yeah, but I don't speak it. What is that you speak? Don't answer. Uh, ready? Rodney. Uh, I mean, Roger. Yeah, uh, date. I'll have to ask my mother. Down, Bernadine. Uh, date, June 27, 1948, to Miss Effie Perrine, care of Perry's Lodge, Canab, the Pearl of the West, Utah. What? Oh, uh, wrong letter. I'll get to that later. Uh... Date, uh, June 27, 1948, to Leo M. Scarlett, care of Leaf Branch, Root, Knox, and Wood, attorneys at law, 333 Pine Street, San Francisco, from Samuel Spade, license number 137596. Subject, the bail bond caper. Dear Leo, I'm sorry things turned out the way they did, Leo, and I'd like you to know how I got into it. It wasn't for the reward. I don't take rewards. I'm not in love with your wife, no matter what she says, and I wasn't sore at you about anything. I was just sitting in my office, minding my own business when the door opened and Vivian walked in. She looked every bit as beautiful as she did when she lived under me in Ma Tuttle's boarding house in 41. In fact, I didn't recognize her until she slithered out of her mink. Hello, Sam. Surprised to see me? Uh, yeah, but I'm trying not to show it. What's on your mind? Is that all you've got to say to me, Sam? Well, you're here on business, aren't you? All right, I don't blame you. It all happened pretty sudden, Leo and me. I should have written or phoned you, I suppose, but somehow... Forget it, Vivian. Now, uh, what do you need a detective for? Are you uh, thinking of divorce already? Oh, please don't, Sam. If it was a mistake, I'm the one who has to live with it, and I made up my mind when I marry Leo this time it's for keeps. No matter what. Mm Mm-hmm. What's the what? He's in trouble, Sam. Well, that's nothing new. Well, this time I don't think it's his fault. When Leo went legit, he meant it. What's he say he's doing now? He's a bail bond broker. Judging from your new look, I'd say he's a success. Sam, a man called him on the phone today. I answered. He said his name was Holiday, but I recognized his voice. It was an old friend of Leo's, Charlie Rosenfoy. Charlie, huh? When did he get out? A couple weeks back. He was paroled. I don't know what he said over the phone... But Leo looked scared and sick. I don't wonder. The word around town was that Charlie took the rap for Leo. Well, I don't know anything about that. All I know is Leo's on the level now, and Charlie never will be. 
He did plenty on his own during that time he served. Well, I won't argue that, but from where I sit, it looks like Leo better start wearing a gun again. He has. That's what I'm so frantic about, Sam. Do you hear any of the conversation from Leo's end? He didn't say much. But I did hear him say, All right, ten tonight. I'll meet you there. That wasn't very smart of him. I know, but that's the way he is. It might be only for a payoff. I thought of that, too. But Leo hasn't got that kind of money. He's been dropping a lot at the racetracks lately. And even if he had it, he's not the type to pay blackmail. I don't like it. Why should I stick my neck out? Why did you have to come to me anyway? Because I trust you, Sam. I know you were jealous of Leo. I was? Sam, if we ever meant anything... If you meant half the things you said to me when we... Stop it. That's blackmail. Oh, I feel so lost and alone. I don't know where to turn. Okay, okay. I'll see what I can do. Oh, Sam. I'll make it up to you somehow. You see if I don't. Sure you will. And tell Leo to stop dropping his money at Tan Ferran. This is going to cost him plenty. Sandra Gould played the new secretary, Bernadine. Mary Jane Croft was Vivian. I don't ever remember. I think the first job I ever got was... Do you remember doing Screen Guild yes. when Bobby Lee and Jimmy O'Neill, they conducted, Bob Lee is a big famous writer now, as you all know, but he and Jim O'Neill conducted ad libs. In other words, they didn't have crowd records at that time. So we all sat in chairs, then the director would cue Bob, and then Bob would have everyone, everybody would talk and do yes. rhubarb and walla walla and all that stuff. You weren't allowed to say walla walla. What? I don't remember what we said. <laughs> what did you but say? We got said, thrown out if you said that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we had to really talk. We just worked constantly, didn't we? Yes, we did. Vivian had said that your rendezvous with Charlie was scheduled for 10 in the p.m. and that you were too upset to go to work that day, so you'd be at home, 1246 Dunbar. I took a plan in your apartment building from a sleepy lagoon-type cocktail bar across the street called, you guessed it, the Sweet Leilani. Your wife joined me, and after a while, we got around to talking. At least she did. <laughs> I bet you can't guess what I'm thinking about. Huh? Listen, Sam. You remember that night we drove to the Half, half Moon? Bay. Oh, you do remember. Oh, we used to do the craziest things. I should have married you, Sam. Please, not while I'm drinking. You know what? The trouble with crooks... They have to work day and night. Yeah. Hey, you're not listening. No, but everybody else in the place is. Let's talk about you, Sam. Did I ever tell you how I met Leo? No, and please don't. And then he opened a bucket shop. You know what a bucket shop is? Yeah. It's stock bro uh, Brokerage. Bro yeah, that's right. Only it's crooked. That was the first business Leo started when he went legit. Mm -hmm. He had to shut it down on account of those securities <laughs> somebody was always stealing out of the safe. Were they insured? Yeah, but they wouldn't renew his policy. So after the second nightclub burned down and he couldn't get any insurance at all, even on his own life. That's why I'm so frantic, Sam. Hey, give me a nickel. I want to play sweet little Annie. Fifty nickels, and two hours later, sweet Leilani broke under the strain, so we had Princess Papuli to leave a night gave out, and we were starting on the Hawaiian war chant when she disappeared through a door marked Wahini's. 
Hawaiian for powder room and never came back. Around 9.45, I mumbled something to the bartender about the lady will pay, put on my smoked glasses and strolled out and across the street. You came out of the building a couple of minutes later. You led me a zigzag course up Merchant Street to Salon, across Salon to Commercial, down Commercial to Drum, and made a lateral pass over Drum back to Dunbar. Your destination, I'd never have guessed it, was the Sweet Leilani. Happily, they were not playing Sweet Leilani. It was very, very quiet. The regular customers had taken a powder, and I didn't blame them. In the new crop at the bar, I counted ten broken noses, at least five broken paroles, assorted knife scars, and four pairs of cauliflower ears, and one maverick. You slid into a booth at the end of the bar, took the gun out of your shoulder holster, and laid it down on the table in front of you. I walked over, turned it around so it was pointing at the jukebox instead of me, and sat down. Some other time, Spade. Some other time I drink with you. I'm waiting for a friend. Why the gun? You selling it to him? Maybe I give it to him. Go on, you drink at the bar. Ah, it's kind of crowded. Looks like uh, Charlie Rosenfoy's old mob. Who are they gunning for? You or Charlie? Why don't you ask them? What are you drinking, Leo? I was with a bottle all day. Got a bad taste. Do me a favor, Spade. There's a bar two doors down the street. Go drink there. There's my friend coming in the door. Any friend of yours is a friend of mine, Leo. Look, Spade. Hello, Leo. What's the matter? You bring a bodyguard to meet your old friend, Charlie? This shamus threw his weight in here. I didn't ask him. I don't need him. Huh. That sounds like the old Leo Scarlatti I used the to know. The name is Scarlet. Oh, pardon me. I've been on the rock for so long, it's hard to catch up on all the changes. There's been a war, Charlie. Anyone tipped you to it yet? You got a smart bodyguard, Leo. Let's talk. Let's go somewhere else and talk. Uh-uh, I like it here. Okay, we start. How come you tipped the mob we were coming here? You promised you wouldn't. Like the shamas, they got a drink somewhere. All right, say what's in your mind and I'll go. Yeah, and if you don't mind, I think I'll uh, do my drinking at the bar. Both of your guns were on the table. It didn't look as though you were going to use them on one another, and I figured that neither of you was going to do much talking in front of me anyway, so I strolled back to the end of the bar to look at the television. The 10 o'clock news roundup was on, and the ticker tape that was moving across the screen said dot, dot, dot in Atlantic City today, period. I ordered a highball, and then the ticker tape started again. This time it said San Francisco, million-dollar bail bond robbery. One million dollars in negotiable bonds is tonight in the hands of a group of daring hold-up men who commandeered an armored truck at the very portals of the police department in the Hall of Justice. And it said this concludes the 10 o'clock edition of the television news roundup. I had a slight hunch that if the television boys had had their cameras on the big bail bond robbery, that at least some of the characters would have been played by at least some of the bad actors that were foregathered in the Sweet Leilani. In fact, what you and Charlie were saying and doing when I walked back to your booth was almost too much to the point. You let me see the bulky portfolio Charlie shoved across the table at you. It looked like a carrying case for bonds, bank messenger type. But it was sealed with wax blobs bearing the imprint of the great seal of the state of California. I was impressed. Where'd you get this? You can read about it in the papers, and if I was you, I'd get this out of sight before them papers hit the street. One thing more, don't try to clip none of them coupons. And one thing more in addition, don't open it at all. Sure. Spade, 
Yeah, Leon? I think I hire you after all. I took the job and you handed me the portfolio. Outside, we flagged the taxi and you gave the driver an address on Portsmouth Square. Your office, I hate to remind you, was behind one of a bunch of neon-lighted storefronts across from the Hall of Justice. The sign on the door said, press the button and let freedom ring any hour, day or night. The only bell in sight was a stop-press-type burglar alarm. You unlocked the door and we went in. You paused in front of a big green safe with a combination lock and started twirling the knob. The tumblers clicked into place. I picked up an inkwell and waited for the safe to open. All right, Spade, give me it. I did, with both hands. With my left, I handed you the portfolio, and with my right, I pitched the inkwell at a well-wired slab of plate glass window. When the burglar alarm went into action, so did you. You dropped everything and were out of the door and out of sight before you could say, let freedom ring. While I was waiting for the cops to arrive, I helped myself to a $500 bearer bond I found lying loose in your safe. I had a feeling I might be needing some bail myself. The makers of Wild Root Cream Oil are presenting the weekly Sunday adventure of Dashiell Hammett's famous private detective, Sam Spade. This is Ali Silva of Fireside Mystery Theater, coming to you at a time of great peril. Some fiend has tied me to a rope dangling just a few feet over a giant boiling cauldron of... What is that? It smells like gazpacho? What gazpacho is supposed to be served cold? Oh, whatever. Why would I put myself in such a situation? Because we at Fireside Mystery Theater will do whatever it takes to create exciting audio drama. Enjoy our acclaimed anthology series of original eerie radio plays, performed before a live audience by a full cast of magnificent actors and a crew of amazing musicians and technicians. Just go to FiresideMysteryTheater.com for show listings, info about us, and links to our podcast. Take a listen for yourself today and find out why our podcast is among one of the top audio drama series out there. Oh, brother. That villain is cutting my rope. Well, that must mean my time is up. So tune in and subscribe to the Fireside Mystery Theater podcast. Oh, and be sure to mind the shadow. Tales can come true, it can happen to you, if you're young at heart. I don't think anything of this kind had been done because we had a lot of tongue-in-cheek stuff and we, I used to do a little ad-libbing now and then if I felt like it, and it was kind of fun. In the final years, we used to rehearse. See, we were supposed to be there at 11.30 on a Sunday. I'd come in from Malibu. I was living in the colony then. 
In the first half hour, we were like a family, everybody, you know, we all worked together. Mostly we had the same people on all the time. Johnny McIntyre and his wife, Jeanette Nolan, and Hans Conrad. Hans Conrad, uh, Bill Conrad was on. Elliot Lewis. Elliot Lewis, Elliot Reed, Elliot's then wife, Kathy Lewis. Is and uh, June Havoc, we mustn't forget that uh, she now. was and, on and there, too. I was going <laughs> to mention June, and June and Kathy used to play yeah, a lot of the girls, all of the, uh, various most parts. of the, uh, the leading ladies. And the first half hour was always kind of, we hadn't seen each other, so we just a lot of gags, and so that was devoted to sort of a social time. Then we eventually got around to reading the script, and then Bill and I would start to rewrite it. <laughs> 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 Which was fun, too. Your we secretary? Had kind of a contest between the two of them. <laughs> no, I'd say, look, Bill, I, this is pretty good here. And he says, well, I don't, I, look, I've got it already written down, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it's going to be. So it was kind of a friendly camaraderie, rivalry, whatever. But I think we loved each other. If you are among the very young at heart, now here's important news on good grooming. If you want the well-groomed look that helps you get ahead, socially and on the job, listen. Recently, thousands of people from coast to coast who bought Wild Root Cream Oil for the first time were asked, how does Wild Root Cream Oil compare with the hair tonic you previously used? The results were amazing. And if you should survive to 105, think of all you derive out of being alive and here. You've had a head start If you are among the very young At home By the way, smart girls use Wild Root Cream Oil too And mothers say it's grand for training children's hair Now back to the Bail Bond Caper, tonight's adventure with Sam Spade. I had hoped, Leo, when I made my spectacular move in your bail bond office and set the bells to ringing, that I'd get the caper off my neck and onto the capable shoulders of the police where it now belonged. Then I told myself I could go home and get some sleep. I had never been that fond of Vivian anyway. I was holding the million-dollar portfolio, complete with its big official seal still unbroken, ready to hand it over with a flourish to the first boy in blue that rushed in. But then I saw something that dashed my hopes. There was a strip of scotch tape across the bottom of it. It wasn't up to me to tamper with important evidence, but I didn't have to. It was only a question of what magazine had been cut up to replace the million dollars in bearer bonds. That question was answered at headquarters 20 minutes later. It turned out to be the last 52 issues of Radio Life, which even Captain Walsh of the robbery detail admitted was no help. Neither was Captain Walsh. Now, Spade, in your statement here, you state, so-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so, sweet Leilani, and that Rosenfoy did hand portfolio exhibit in question to Leo M. Scarlett, alias Scarlatti, at approximately 10.20 p.m. this day. That's it, Captain. Now, uh, you sure you want to stick with this? You don't want to change any part of the statement? No, I just want to go home and go to bed. I'm afraid you're going to stay with us for a while. Who, me? Um, 
Statement of Jordan Joyce, M.D. Statements of Hilda Sackwriter, R.N. and Mildred DeVilbis, R.N. Day and night nurses, respectfully. Who's sick? Rosenfoy. He's been quarantined in his home in Daly City since his release from Alcatraz four days ago. Chicken pox. Sorry, Sam, I'll have to book you. You sure you don't want to add anything to that statement? <sighs> Only this. Kelsey Walsh... If you continue to do such brilliant police work, you will be waving a stop sign at a school crossing in time for the fall semester. You are a hangnail on the finger of justice. I thought I had been courteous and cooperative, but even so, it was the middle of the afternoon by the time they set my bail. Fifteen hundred bucks. That made it life. But I hadn't had time to hang the curtains in my cell when I got even worse news. My bail had been posted by who? Vivian, a banana peel in the steps of progress. She met me outside. Well, aren't you going to thank me? What for? Getting me in jail or getting me out? Getting you out, of course. It was all the money I had in all the world. Leo's money was impounded, you know. But Sam, when I thought of what you and I once meant to each other, and maybe we still Yeah, yeah, out. well, uh... You'll get your money back. I'm not really guilty. Oh, I know that. What else do you know? I guess it's safe to talk. Leo phoned me today. Where is he? He wouldn't say. Some pay station. He kept putting in nickels. Sam, you've got to talk to him. You've got to convince him it's best to give himself up. Now you're beginning to make sense, sweetheart. But how can I get to talk to him? I've arranged it. He's to meet us at the Club Leilani. You know, where we had our reunion yesterday. That place on Dunbar? Yeah. Oh, that's great. A crowded saloon less than a block from the police department. Besides, the place has lousy memories for me. By the way, did you ever get out of the ladies' room? If you don't mind, I'd rather talk about something else. Okay, let's talk about how do we bring this big secret meeting off in a crowded cafe. Is Leo coming in a false beard? You really think I'm stupid, don't you? I didn't say so. Well, it so happens that the place is closed on Tuesday. See that sign in the window? Closed Tuesday? Mm-hmm. Now, how do we break in? I was counting on you. You're a detective. Can't you use a glass key or something? Did you say that bail bond you bought for me was all the money you had in the world? That's the truth. Then get ready to forfeit it. It's a risk I've got to take. You've got to take. Sam, please, if we ever meant anything Yeah, to... I know, Half Moon Bay. But sometimes I wish we hadn't been childhood sweethearts. Wait here, I'll case the alley. The alley wasn't much better. There were two windows, washroom type, all glass brick, except for two small ventilators big enough to put your hand through. The only hope was the kitchen skylight. I didn't have any trouble getting up to it, but once I was there, things didn't look so good. The view from the roof was a garage door with two green lights flanking it. Then it struck me where I was and why I was there. The Club Leilani backed directly on the Hall of Justice where the big bail bond robbery had taken place at 5 p.m. the night before. Without further ado, I put my foot through a pane of the skylight, reached in, unlatched it, and dropped. Hurry up, let me in, Sam. Up at the front of the building, I could hear Vivian clamoring for admittance. I decided to let her clamor for another minute or two. It isn't a thing I often do, but I walked resolutely into the ladies' powder room. It was very well equipped. It had furniture, a telephone, and more clues than I needed. The magazines were there, the razor blades were there, the scotch tape was there. There was even a scraping of red sealing wax on the steel frame of the window slot. But best of all was what I found in the paper towel dispenser. 
I lifted it out and moved it next door to the men's washroom. Then I let her in. What kept you so long? You'll spoil everything. I was afraid you'd... Here comes your husband. (gasps) Come on, let me in. What happened, Leo? You're early. Any objections? I just got itchy, that's all. How are you, baby? Don't, Leo. I'm so nervous. Strange. What are we going to do, baby? What's Spade going to do for us? Tell him, Sam. I'll leave you two alone to talk it out. Freshen up a little. Haven't had my face on all day. Poor kid. Well, Spade, let's have it. Yeah, she's right, Leo. I can do a lot for you. But you've got to do something for me. Spade, this is level. I never saw those bonds. I know that. Then what are you after? The truth. It's the only thing that can save you. And if you take this rap, I take it too. I'm in clear up to my neck. Okay. Charlie Rosenfoy came around to Vivian and made her this proposition. He was going to pull this bail bond job and plant the goods on me to get even for the rap he thought he'd taken for me. Mm-hmm. Vivian pretended to play along with him, only she got hold of the package long enough to take the bonds out and put the old magazines in instead. Yeah. The idea was the mob would think Charlie had double-crossed them, taken the goods for himself, and delivered a phony packet to their banker, which was supposed to be me. Cute. Only you had to get smart and set off that burglar alarm. Now I'm getting the squeeze on all sides. The mob, the law, Charlie are all gunning for me at once. Don't worry about the mob and the law, and don't worry too much about Charlie. What are you driving at? That'll be him now. Who tipped him I was here? Get back in the corner. It's dark in here. He'll never see you. I'll take care of it. All right. Hello, Charlie. Oh. Come on in. Oh. Good boy, Spade. Get his gun. You're my friend. Sure, I'm your friend. Come here. Yeah, sure, Spade. Pleasant dreams, fellas. Now I act. Hey, Charlie. No, Leo. <laughs> Vivian? Sam? Is that you? Yeah. The last of your boyfriends. You mean Leo? Charlie? Yeah. They just knocked each other off. Oh, Sam. I can't see. Dark. Where are you? Right here in front of the jukebox. Hope to die. (gasps) Drop it, Vivian. It's empty. Sam, Vivian, how could you? After Half Moon Bay. I'm sorry I had to knock you boys out, Leo, but uh, better lumps than bullet holes, eh? After she started wrapping up the caper, it wasn't too hard to figure what she was up to, providing you could keep her smoke out of your eyes. She told Charlie how to operate on you and told you how to operate on Charlie. A million dollars for her and two dead gangsters lying on the floor of an empty joint where they'd shot it out. The secret of the missing bonds would have to be written off by the police as having died with either one of whichever of you ever had them. Period. End of something. 
Pardon me, Mr. Spade. I, I know you're tired, and if you're too brushed, please feel free to elude the whole matter. But... Yes, okay, let's do that. Thank you. Effie said that you were always glad to qualify any little points that she didn't understand. Mm, she said that, did she? Yeah. But she also said that quite accidentally that you sometimes leave things out that should be left in. Bernadine, times are very bad. They're cutting salaries everywhere. But where were they during the whole nefarious affair, if you'll pardon the expression? The bonds? In the paper towel dispenser. Didn't I say so? Oh, that's what you moved to the men's. Mm -hmm. But how did they get there? In the Walrini's, if you'll pardon the expression. Simple. When the thieves whizzed through the alley after the heist, Vivian had her well-manicured little lunch hook thrust through the window slot to receive them. Oh, that's how the red sailing wax got there. Bernadine, you're spectacular. Now go and type this up. You're making me nervous. You know what they say about people who like mysteries? Once a mystery fan, always a mystery fan. And that goes for hair tonics, too. Once a Wild Root Cream Oil fan, always a Wild Root Cream Oil fan. Just try it and you'll see what I mean. Wild Root Cream Oil grooms the hair neatly and naturally, relieves annoying dryness, and removes loose, ugly dandruff. So tonight, or first thing tomorrow, step up to your drug or toilet goods counter and ask for Wild Root Cream Oil. Get the big economy bottle and the handy new tube that's easy to pack when you travel. Also, ask your barber for a professional application of Wild Root Cream Oil Hair Tonic. Again and again, the choice of men who put good grooming first. Well, here it is, Mr. Spade. I hope it's not too erroneous. Oh, I'm sure it's quite offensive. Don't you mean inoffensive, Mr. Spade? Have it your way. I don't want to sound imprudent, Mr. Spade, but I must say that your conduct through the whole thing was very brave and outrageous. Don't you mean courageous? <laughs> oh, now I've got you doing it. You're going to be just like Mr. Cummel. Your uh, previous employer, no doubt. Yeah, poor man. You know, he finally became completely erasable. They had to take him away. Mm -hmm. What were his symptoms? Well, when he ordered the puppy biscuits, I thought he was just being concentric. But after a while, he wouldn't answer to anything but Rover. I had to sprinkle his flea powder in the morning, you know? And then he had his little tricks. He always wanted to show off, you know, sitting up and rolling over. He could shake hands, too. What's so great about that? Any dog can shake hands. Yeah, but can you scratch your ear with your foot? If I uh, set my mind to it. Now go home, Bernadine, or I'll report you to the SPCA. <laughs> you can't frighten me. Effie told me that your bark is worse than your bite. Good night, Mr. Spade. Effie in far-off Canab, come home, sweetheart. The Adventures of Sam Spade, Dashiell Hammett's famous private detective, are produced and directed by William Spear. Sam Spade is played by Howard Duff. The Adventures of Sam Spade are written for radio by Bob Tallman and Gil Dowd, with musical direction by Lud Gluskin. Gil Dowd directed tonight's broadcast in William Spears' absence. Join us again next Sunday for another adventure with Sam Spade, brought to you by Wild Root Cream Oil. Again and again, the choice of men who put good grooming first. This is Dick Joy reminding you to... Get Wild Root Cream Oil, Charlie. It keeps your hair in trim. You see, it's non-alcoholic, Charlie. It's made with soothing lanolin. 
You better get wild root cream oil. Charlie, start using it today. You'll find that you will have a tough time, Charlie, keeping all the gals away. Hiya, Baldy. Get wild root right away. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Radio entered the 1948-49 season fresh off a year of record earnings. The four major networks, ABC, CBS, Mutual, and NBC, added 76 new AM affiliates. FM radio stations had leaped. There were now almost 500. But of greater concern to radio was the rapid growth of TV. By December of 1948, 52 TV stations were on the air with another 50 under construction. There were now 940,000 United States TV homes. It's no coincidence, overall radio listenership fell by a million. Meanwhile on Sunday evenings, NBC and CBS's battle for rating supremacy had competition. With Fred Allen's NBC radio comedy peaking in ratings on Sunday nights at 8.30, they dropped their sponsor, Tenderleaf Tea, for the Ford Motor Company. Ford had been sponsoring an hour-long concert broadcast on Sunday nights at 8 on ABC. As a result, ABC had an hour of prime time to fill and needed something that had both listener and sponsor appeal. Quiz Kids creator Louis G. Cowan and composer Harry Salter pitched a music giveaway show. It was to be called Stop the Music. It debuted on March 21st, 1948. Your attention, America! Do you hear the beat of the clock? Before the next hour is up, any minute, any second, you may be richer by thousands of dollars in prizes. Because right now, from coast to coast, it's time to play Stop the Music! Harry Solver and the orchestra, the songs of K. Arman and Dick Brown, our master musical ceremonies, Burt Parks, and starring you, the people of America. It was inexpensive, even with the prize money. The whole crew consisted of Salter Studio Orchestra, two vocalists, and host Burt Parks. ABC offered quarter-hour sponsorships to non-competing advertisers. The Adventures of Sam Spade, Detective. Brought to you by Wild Root Cream Oil Hair Tonic, the non-alcoholic hair tonic that contains lanolin. Wild Root Cream Oil, again and again, the choice of men who put good grooming first. 
Sam Spade, Detective Agency. Good evening. That sounds funny in dialect. Good evening to you and happy 4th of July, Bernadine Hemp. Oh, Mr. Spade, what was the caper? Don't you mean caper? No, the caper. The high point of the caper. The climax, the crescendo, the pinafore. Well, that's better. For a minute, I was afraid you were uh, learning English. Oh, no. I'm studying Spanish. Soy infeliz que inicia... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Mucho interesting. (laughs) Gracias. Shall I go home now? No, uh, mal suerte. There's a little matter of murder in two languages, neither of which is Spanish, so stay where you are. I'll be right down to dictate my report on the Rushlight Diamond Caper. Dashiell Hammett, America's leading detective fiction writer and creator of Sam Spade, the hard-boiled private eye, and William Spear, radio's outstanding producer-director of mystery and crime drama, join their talents to make your hair stand on end with the adventures of Sam Spade. Presented by the makers of Wild Root Cream Oil for the hair. Listen, men, to this holiday tip on good grooming. To help spark up your whole appearance, first be sure that your hair is well-groomed. Be sure it's groomed with popular Wild Root Cream Oil hair tonic. Wild Root Cream Oil grooms your hair neatly and naturally, the way you like it, the way she likes it. Wild Root Cream Oil also relieves annoying dryness, removes loose, ugly dandruff. So look your best all the time by sprucing up right with Wild Root Cream Oil hair tonic. Again and again, the choice of men who put good grooming first. And now, with Howard Duff starring as Spade, Wild Root brings to the air the greatest private detective of them all in the adventures of Sam Spade. Date, July 4, 1948, to Mrs. May Rushlight, 21A, Granite Court, from Samuel Spade, license number 137596. Subject, the uh, Rushlight Diamond. Dear Mrs. Rushlight, it was the kind of nice, relaxing assignment that comes my way just often enough to remind me that gumshoeing can be respectable. There was an air of quiet elegance about 21A, Granite Court, and about the butler who answered the door. He uh, took in my rented gray topper and doeskin gloves, nodded approvingly at my wing collar, watered silk ascot, pearl gray waistcoat, morning coat, pinstripe trousers, and my spats with the mother of pearl buttons, and asked me if I were a florist. I set him to rights, and he led me up a flight of stairs to the early a.m. annex of your morning room. Mr. Samuel Spade. You're just on time, Mr. Spade. Mrs. Rushlight will be pleased. I'm Nancy Ward, Mrs. Rushlight's social secretary. And if you don't think that's tough to say, try it. Uh, Mrs. Rushlight's socials? Uh, what's tough about that? Uh, you'll do. Definitely, you'll do. Shall we dance? I will dance at her wedding. But don't get me wrong, I'm not secretly in love with Ralph Rushlight, and the bride is lovely. Just hate to see all that money going down the drain. Is there anything else you think I should know? You know what your job is. You're supposed to guard the wedding presents. That's simple because it's nothing but a lot of cheap silver. And stay away from the champagne. It's non-vintage. The food will be foul. The guests are the most dismal aggregation ever assembled. Sounds like a lovely party. I arranged the whole thing. I told you she's a lovely bride. What's she ever do to you? I'd rather not say. I don't want to sound bitter. This way, Mr. Spade. The old hat. Mrs. Rushlight will see you now. Thank you, Florence Nightingale. Nancy? Oh. This is it, darling. Mr. Spade. Come over here, young man, so I can get a better look at you. How's this? Hmm, it's good. Turn around. 
Yes, you'll do. Uh, that'll be all, Nancy. Uh, couldn't I be finishing up these place cards while you talk? Take them with you. Do them outside. Very well. <laughs> Nosy girl. But nice. Nice nose. Oh, you too, eh? Well, I agree. That's why I'm marrying off my nephew to that wretched girl, Lotta Van Eyck. Have you ever seen Bugs Bunny, Mr. Spade? You don't mean the... They protrude. The ears? No, the teeth. Oh. As my late husband used to say of her mother, she could eat a tomato through a tennis racket. Oh. There's only one thing that'll prevent this wedding from being an utter disaster. She doesn't understand much English. Uh-huh. Well, what's the matter with your nephew? A great deal, but it doesn't show. Suffice it to say, he has criminal tendencies and the mentality of a snail. Mrs. Rushlight, I don't like to seem forward, but why are you telling me all this? Oh, you're, you're supposed to mingle with the guests. You'll need some conversation. Now, as to your assignment... The bride, being what she is, the wedding presents are hardly worth guarding except <clears throat> for one. Ironically enough, it's from me. What is it, a machine gun? Oh, 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 oh that's good. Oh, oh, excuse me, I must write that down. And then tear it up immediately. <laughs> oh, dear. No, no, Mr. Spade. But it's bad luck, the Rushlight Diamond. You've heard of it? Uh, something about it in the American Weekly a while back, wasn't there? Yes, yes. It's not as large as the Hope Diamond, but there's not a flaw in it. My late husband, Roy Rushlight, bought it for his first wife. She sank with the SS General Slocum in Hellgate, the East River, 194, over a thousand lives lost. Luckily, she was wearing a paste copy at the time. I was only a young girl when I married Mr. Rushlight, and a uh, fool that I was, I signed anything his lawyers asked me to sign. After his death, I discovered that the diamond was to be mine only until the marriage of my husband's male heir, at which time it must go to his bride. Well, that's too bad. Uh, you say, though, that the Rushlight Diamond is bad luck. Oh. Oh, there's that, of course. <laughs> I wonder if it's too much to hope. Hmm. Well, I must go and help dress the bride. Go along downstairs, Miss Spade. Take this jewel case with you. Put it on the table with the other presents and guard it well. One of the oft-featured, uncredited supporting character actresses on Spade was Bill Spear's wife, June Havoc. And our guest, William Spear, the producer, director, and editor of Suspense. And one of the most charming people who ever appeared on Suspense was your lovely wife, Bill, and we haven't mentioned her at all, and I want her to sit down next to you and chat with us because she certainly is familiar to all of our listeners I know. June Havoc, it is a pleasure to welcome you to this show. Thank you. Let's talk about your radio career, June, and Bill, I want to get you in on this because you certainly work together. Something that I never realized was that June Havoc appeared on any number of your shows and was never given any credit. Now, tell me why that was. Maybe, June, maybe, maybe you want to... Uh, June, you better tell, tell right. I got all the credit in the world. I got taken to dinner every night. <laughs> I got wooed. I got an engagement ring and a wedding ring out of it. So I got plenty out of it. Yes, I got a marvelous man out of it, a brilliant man. And 23 years, he'll say it's 24. Don't listen to me. Coming up. But it is coming up, 24 years of marriage. The couple married on January 25th, 1948. 
Matthew Lewis and June Havoc did most of the uh, leading ladies. Well, he was romancing her at that time. Uh, did that show up in his choice of roles and everything like that? It was very, a very touching I don't story. Really, I think maybe they weren't married when she first no, came No, they weren't. The he was they courting were. her, and that oh, was his really? way of uh, making an impression upon her. He was a <laughs> caster in all these various roles. Unbilled most of the time, by the way. Oh, no. Yeah, I guess so. No, I was the only guy that got Yeah, you got the star billing. And 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 I had to uh, fight like mad for that, believe me. Well, that's another, a whole other story. <laughs> <laughs> we won't go into that. Although June Havoc was a Hollywood A-lister, she was initially resented by the rest of the supporting cast. June Havoc, who was uh, Bill Spears' wife, occasionally played a part in Sam Spade so she could spend Sunday with her husband. That's an interesting point, by the way. Uh, there were many after people then who weren't surviving, and Lorraine Tuttle made an impassioned plea with Bill Spear one time to have June come in and visit, but couldn't you give the parts you give to her to someone who needs the work? <laughs> Hmm. And that didn't please anybody too much. Yeah, I imagine. In those days, as a star, a film actress at the time, what I would do when I did a radio show was you would appear and it would all be very posh and your agent would be standing by and you'd have a special microphone of your very own and then you'd have um, uh, all sorts of marvelous treatment and the really marvelous radio actors would be way over there surrounding one microphone. <laughs> and I did that, you know, whenever one did a radio show and then eventually when I got to know Bill well enough to be asked out and asked for dinner he was doing suspense and Sam Spade and he'd say why don't you sit in the booth with me and when I'm through doing the show we'll go and dine so I sat in the booth long enough to envy those actors he's a wonderful wonderful marvelous director and so I asked him one night very I batted my eyelashes and asked him if he would let me be one of the anonymous actors because they didn't get billing. They're just marvelous. They're all stars today. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, after a while, they did accept me, but it was pretty rough, the producer-director girl sitting in there taking a job <laughs> from somebody when she didn't need it, you know. And she, But it worked, and I learned a great deal. And I played toothless old hags and Chinese people, and I played myself twice. I was twins once. Really? I murdered myself. It was well, very difficult. It was a challenge. <laughs> we have never had this opportunity on the program to ask a stage star and a motion picture star how she adapted to, to radio. Was it difficult for you at first? Yes. It's an entirely different medium. And I originated, as you know, probably on the stage. And uh, when I first did my first film acting, I was in a... I, in fact, I wasn't really... I've never been very good at it. It's not my medium. And then television is even more difficult. That's not my medium either. I prefer the stage. and It's very simple, isn't it, to hear me say that. Radio was the closest to what I really loved. So I took the old velvet-covered case you held out to me and checked the contents. It was an old-fashioned lavalier with a clear stone pendant only slightly smaller than an eight ball. Didn't look like a diamond, but smooth-cut diamonds hardly ever do. It didn't look like bad luck either, but a mirror broke in the hall as I passed it, then I fell all the way down the stairs, and as I entered the ballroom, I knocked over a punch bowl. Nothing uh, really terrible happened until just before dark when the guests began to arrive. In theory, a detective guarding wedding presents is supposed to make himself indistinguishable from the other guests. In practice, it never works out that way. He has to spend most of his time within sight of the booty, so he is very easily spotted. I don't believe it. He's 
too good looking. Oh, but he must be. He's not anybody we know. Well, ask him. It's leap year. Oh, here comes Colonel Bixby. He'll know. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Beauty gathered round the booty, eh? <laughs> and much more beauty than booty, though. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Say, when are they going to hang the diamond on that drip? No, no, there's no way to talk about the blushing bride. I is that it in the crummy old case there? That case is heirloom, young lady. The stone that reposes in it is worth a king's ransom. Now take your grubby hands elsewhere. Oh. Be off with you. Go on. Well, just because he's going to give the bride away, he thinks he can order everyone around. Uh, Mr. Spade, allow me to congratulate you, sir. For these affairs, one all too often sees the detective on guard duty at the punch bowl. I was forewarned. Oh, yes, very bad champagne. Flat. <laughs> I'll be glad when these ill-starred nuptials are consummated. And by the way, Bixby's my name, Colonel Lysander Bixby. Colonel? It is my melancholy and thankless duty to give the bride away to the hapless groom, Ralph Rushlight. However, it's much better to give than to receive. <laughs> you tell that to May Rushlight, eh? Uh, quite a trinket. Uh-uh-uh. Mustn't touch grubby hands, remember? Oh, <laughs> sense of humor as well as sense of duty, eh? Candidly, if I knew a place to fence it, I'd be the... Colonel Bixby. Oh, Miss Ward. Oh, how lovely you look. Poor Ralph. Mrs. Rushlight asked me to warn you to get ready. The bride will be down any moment. Oh, good grief. Well, I suppose I must steal myself. Where did I leave my glass? Keep your eye on that old goat, Mr. Spade. I don't trust him. Who is he? He's the only one here who knows why this wedding's happening. He's the bride's foster father. You mean he's got something on the family? You'll never know how much until you kiss the bride. Look, Nancy, it's none of my business, but I... Oh, oh starting. I'll have to go in now. Oh, wait. What? Uh, how does it go? Uh, speak now or forever hold your peace? No, I, I can't do that. Thank you for understanding. <laughs> I didn't witness the ceremony, but judging from the mood of those who had, it was just as well I didn't. They shuffled back into the ballroom looking as if they'd witnessed an execution, and nobody seemed to be in a hurry to join the receiving line. After a few half-hearted handshakes, the groom left the bride standing alone, looking kind of bewildered, and came over to take inventory of the presents. Look at that junk. I'm Ralph Rushlight. Who are you? Spade. I was hired to guard this junk, as you call it. Sorry I'm wasting my time. The Rushlight Diamond. It's bad luck. Look at what it did to me. Look at her. Did you ever say anything? Give it to yourself. Why should I? Because I'm liable to slap you clear across this room. Haven't I been punished enough? Go on, go on, scram. Keep your hooks off that necklace. That's mine. I heard it's your wife's. Come along, well, you right heard wrong. Come along over here. Oh, Mr. Spade, you haven't met the bride yet, have you? Uh, no. Thank you. I, uh... Uh, I wish you a lot of luck, Mrs. Rushlight. You're going to need it. Thank you. Well, I suppose now as well as any time, Colonel. Oh, oh very well, my dear. Mm. Uh, quiet, please. Mm. Quiet, everyone. Uh, uh, Mrs. Rushlight, the old... Uh, the elder Mrs. Rushlight, that is, has something to say to you. Mr. Spade. Yes? The necklace, will you please hand it to me? With pleasure. I'm tired of looking at it. Oh, you're not done yet. <laughs> Stay close by my side. <coughs> dear friends... At this solemn moment, I want, first of all, to welcome this dear little girl into the Rushlight family. Thank you. Yes. Uh, and now, dear Lotta, I will place around your neck the gem which was my heritage when I became a Rushlight and which is now yours. Thank you. 
Oh, what's wrong? Lotta, come back here. Lotta! I'll go out to the carport and head her off. Oh, you leave her alone. I'll take care of her. Whose wife is she, anyhow? Lotta, come back here. Lotta, bring it back! I was almost ashamed of joining the chase, but I had to because I'd been hired to guard the Rushlight Diamond, and for my money, the best way to do that was to help her get away. Well, somebody got to her before I did. A strip of wedding gown satin marked the spot. The body lay crumpled under a hedge, but it wasn't the bride's body. It was the groom. He'd been stabbed to death with a pair of garden shears, which made sense. But what didn't make sense was that the necklace she'd been wearing was still clutched in his hand. The makers of Wild Root Cream Oil are presenting the weekly Sunday adventure of Dashiell Hammett's famous private detective, Sam Spade. If you want the well-groomed look that helps you get ahead socially and on the job, listen. Recently, thousands of people from coast to coast who bought Wild Root Cream Oil for the first time were asked, how does Wild Root Cream Oil compare with the hair tonic you previously used? Better than four out of five who replied said they preferred Wild Root Cream Oil. And no wonder. Wild Root Cream Oil grooms the hair neatly and naturally, relieves annoying dryness, and removes loose dandruff. What's more, non-alcoholic Wild Root Cream Oil is the only leading hair tonic that contains soothing lanolin. So ask for Wild Root Cream Oil Hair Tonic. Again and again, the choice of men who put good grooming first. By the way, smart girls use Wild Root Cream Oil too, and mothers say it's grand for training children's hair. And now back to the Rushlight Diamond Caper. Tonight's adventure with Sam Spade. Number 21A Granite Court was teeming with motives and suspects. But the police were primarily interested in locating Lotta, the missing bride and widow of Ralph Rushlight. So was I. She looked like less work than the rest of you because if she had killed him, it was self-defense if she knew enough English. By 10 in the a.m., when I checked in at my office, she was still successfully eluding the police dragnet. That was because nobody, including me, had thought of looking in my office. Wow. Good morning. Thank you. Is that all the English you know? Thank you, no. I want my necklace. The police have it. You go with me. Tell them who I am. Okay, but first, I have to know who you are. Where you came from, what your connection with Colonel Bixby is. I am in Macassar being born. In Macassar? Dutch colony. Uh-huh. My father there seven years ago dying is. When I, 13 years old, have arrived. I see. Colonel Bixby in San Francisco, the financial representative from my father was. I am adopted to him, not for a father, but so he takes care of my monies, which coming of age am I a rich Dutch woman. Uh-huh. But legally, he's your foster father. yeah. Also, legally, I'm the wife of Rushlight. I want my necklace. You married him for the necklace? Yeah. Why did he marry you? For one half of necklace when we sell. But all, everything to take he wishes. You and Ralph were going to divvy the take from the Rushlight diamond, you thought. Yeah, yeah. And what was the colonel going to get? Money's for Mrs. Rushlight. 
Oh, no, wait, that doesn't make sense. Mrs. Rushlight stood to lose a small fortune by that marriage. Why should she pay the colonel to promote it? You the detective are. You said that. Where my necklace are, that I say. Yeah, well, look, I'm not as sure as I was. Uh, wait just a minute, I'll uh, check on it. Homicide, <clears throat> Lieutenant Dundee. Uh, Spade, Dundee. Uh, yes, Sam. What's new on the Rushlight caper? Oh, you know I can't talk about the case, Sam. Oh, I got a line on that girl. Oh? Where is she? You know I can't talk about that, Dundee. Oh, you can't, can't you? Well, let's see if this doesn't change your mind. The necklace we found on Rushlight's body was a phony, a base copy. Uh-huh. Does that make her guiltier than she was before? Well, now she's got a motive. Throws all our previous theories into a cocked hat. Now, where's the girl? She's in my office, Lieutenant, dear. Come and get her. Thank you. Oh, it's you, Sam. Back again? Yeah, do you mind? Well, that depends on who you came to see. You, sweetheart. But uh, first, I'd like to talk to Mrs. Rushlight. Well, she can't see anyone. She's in a state of nervous collapse over the... over Ralph's death. Oh, that's too bad. You uh, seem to be holding up pretty well. Well, I'm relieved. He's better off dead than married to that... Yeah. Rushlight Diamond's still unlucky, you know. What do you mean by that? I was just trying it on for size. Uh-huh. Now, does it fit? Yeah, but uh, you and Mrs. Rushlight are about the same size. Her uh, nerves getting any better? You're the doctor. If you want to see her, go ahead. She's up there. Thank you. Mrs. Rushlight. Go away, I'm ill. I'm sorry to break in on you like this, but I haven't got much time. How dare you? Nancy, Nancy. Try is that girl? Mr. Spade, please leave me alone with my grief. Funny thing, yesterday Nancy was carrying a torch for Ralph and you were holding the torch to him. Today it's different. Oh, good heavens, you, you, you don't think I'm grief-stricken over Ralph. Good, that's one less mystery. M- Mr. Spade, what do you want? Your nephew's killer. Oh, does it matter? It does to me. Somebody getting knocked off right under my nose is bad for private detectives everywhere. Oh. <laughs> for a moment, I thought that... Say, wouldn't you rather make some more money? I refuse to marry Lotta. Oh, no, nothing like that. It's the necklace, Mr. Spade, the genuine... What is? I don't know. All I know is the other one isn't. Who told you that? Well, well the p- police know. It's, it's in the papers, isn't it? Not yet. Well, how else would I learn? The murderer is the only one who could have told you, unless you're the murderer. I see. Very well, Mr. Spade. I'll tell you what I know. I'm not as wealthy as you might think. In, in, in fact, I have for four years lived from pillar to post, from hand to mouth... Ragtag and bobtail struggling to make ends meet. Yeah, what you mean is you're eking out a meager existence, keeping your head above water, one jump ahead of the sheriff, stalked by the grim specter of poverty. Is that right? Oh, how well you put it. In fact, Mr. Spade, I'm something of a crook. I've borrowed large sums of money from Colonel Bixby, putting up as collateral something that was not mine to forfeit. Uh uh-uh, uh, don't tell me. Let me guess. Uh, it was the Rushlight Diamond? Well, you seem to know everything. All but one thing. 
Why did you think you could palm off a paste copy on an operator like Bixby? He sent you here. I I won't tell you another single thing. Well, then I'll tell you a few things. The only way the Rushlight Diamond could be transferred legally into the hands of Colonel Bixby was by tricking Ralph into marriage with Lotta, since Ralph's wife automatically became the legal owner. With Ralph dead, Bixby would be in line to inherit the diamond from her. Inherit? California state law. Foster parent may inherit from a foster child in absence of any direct heir. Well, why, then he planned. He... He, he'd kill her, too. M- Mr. Spade, we must stop him. She's safe for the time being. I had her thrown into the pokey. They can hold her 48 hours for questioning, but they can hold you longer. They can even hold you as an accessory before the fact. Why? Why, I, I didn't know he was going to kill anyone. Lotta was just going to hand over a million-buck diamond to Bixby out of the kindness of her heart? Oh, no. Lotta wanted to become an American citizen. Marriage is the quickest way. For her, Ralph was the only way. Okay, I'll buy that. Now, tell me honestly, Mrs. Rushlight, what happened to the genuine stone? I honestly didn't know. I wasn't sure. But now there can be only one answer. Nancy with the laughing face? She went with me when I went to the bank vault to get the Rushlight diamond to present to Lotta after the ceremony. Uh-huh. She looked after <clears throat> all my jewels, including the paste copy that I habitually wore. Homicide, Lieutenant Dundee. Uh, Spade again, Dundee. I, uh... I think I got the rushlight caper all wrapped up. I'm heading for your office now, so wait for me. And whatever you do, don't let that lot of dame out of your sight. Thank you. Goodbye. Wait a minute, Sam. Wait a minute. Yeah? The lot of dame. She's already gone. Escaped? Bailed out. Custody of her foster father. Wait a minute. I got the name here, sir. Bixby. He's a colonel, and no wonder you're only a lieutenant. Uh, M- Mr. Spade, can't you stay for tea? Not thirsty. Nancy? Nancy, where are you? Oh, here I am, Sam. I-, I was waiting for you. You got the keys to that car out in front? Why, yes. Do you want to borrow it? Yes, with you in it. Why, Sam, where did I put my face on? Let it go. It's as good as lost anyway. By the fall of 1948, Stop the Music had been on the air for six months and had awarded three jackpot prizes averaging nearly $20,000 in retail value. By December, Bergen's rating was 21.7, Spades was 18.4, and Stop the Music was 15.5. Then in late 1948, CBS chairman William Paley hired Bergen away from NBC. The ventriloquist left the air for the rest of the season. It created a ripple effect through the Sunday ratings. In January of 1949, NBC moved Fred Allen up a half hour to 8 p.m. opposite Spade. But it was Stop the Music that saw ratings rise to 18.9. Spade's audience cratered. In one month, they lost nearly half their listeners. Then Dashiell Hammett's name came before the House Committee on Un-American Activities. Wildroot was becoming uneasy. Mary, no! God, let let go! I simply don't understand it. Of course, the sound is coming from the basement. It's all right, I've got you, Mr. Adam. No, no. Show me what? Gotta get away from those eyes! Get away! Get away! George, no! Ah! 
Are you attracted to the dark, fascinated by the dramatic, with a side of gruesome and a dash of poetic justice? If your happy place is a gloomy room at midnight, then you should be listening to the podcast, Twelve Chimes It's Midnight. Please join us, won't you, for plays of mystery, horror, and suspense. Find us and subscribe wherever you procure your podcasts. And remember, at midnight, anything can happen. I always like to work with the top people. I'm not very good when I work with people who are not very good. <laughs> I'm just not. I like to work with people who are vibrant and know their business. I work a thousand times better if I have a challenge. I think it comes from being a Leo like I am. I just think, you know, because I'm a Leo, I just, I roar that way. In the fall of 1949, while many programs were jumping from NBC to CBS, The Adventures of Sam Spade did the opposite. Edgar Bergen took their old CBS time slot. The two shows would once again run head-to-head. -head. By then, Spear was on hiatus from suspense, having left the program in January of 1948. The move to NBC proved to be unsuccessful, with Jack Benny, Edgar Bergen, Amos and Andy, and Red Skelton all now running on CBS. Spade fell out of Sunday's top 10, and their highest rated month was January of 1950, with an 11.5. At the same time, a wave of anti-communism swept through Hollywood. Variety was reporting that Wild Root would only continue if Hammett's name was removed from the credits. Then in June of 1950, Howard Duff was listed in the Red Channels, and the show's fate was sealed. One of the minor ones, uh at least I think it was minor, was the rumor that Howard Duff. Howard Duff had been listed in some book against all this. And actually all Howard ever did, if he did that, was to go to a lunch being held in honor of somebody who was out of work because he was on the Hollywood blacklist, some screenwriter or somebody. Quite possible Howard didn't even know the man, and uh, I'm sure he's as far from being of that political ilk as he could be, but and, of course, we talked about Dashiell Hammett, who created the character of Sam Spade, but actually had nothing to do with the radio series, except that for the first few years we mentioned his name in connection with originating the character. And I, I don't know if that was a legal demand of Warner Brothers at the time. They made certain demands of Bill Spear. Certain credits had to be given in connection with using the, the character. It could have gone on and probably become a television show. But unfortunately, uh, Dashiell Hammett went to jail for contempt of Congress during that. That was a big red mm. routine going on. And uh, Actually, he had nothing to do with our show, but he's, he created the character of Sam Spade. And so, oh, uh, so the sponsors just said, and I made red channels because I was a little too liberal for oh. those times, apparently. And, <laughs> and the combination killed the show. That's why they came up with Charlie Wilde, Private Eye. That was the after... Was that it? That was the show... 
it Charlie was, Wild, but it was Wild, Wild Roy, Roy. Primo. Yeah, oh, you know, boy. Charlie. I didn't. Primo. I wasn't even aware of that. It was amazing. On September 9, 1950, Billboard magazine announced that Wild Root was dumping Spade and putting its money into a new series, Charlie Wild, Private Detective. There were 250,000 letters protesting the decision. Duff's last broadcast was the Femme Fatale caper on September 17, 1950. It went six years and was one of the victims of the assassination of radio, plus complicating factors in the unjust, completely unjust, polarizing of Dashiell Hammett, who had been thought to have been with communist leadings, which he was not, so far as I know. And so the show was disappeared. I was in Europe at the time. I had uh, We recorded it in advance, transcriptions. And I was in Europe. June and I were on a trip there, and I heard from Larry White that Sam Spade had been canceled. And I thought, well, it's not too bad that I suppose that Philip Morris or whoever it was ran out of the budget changed or something, but it'll be sold in an hour, because it was a very successful show, always in the first ten. And two weeks, three weeks went by, and there was still nobody, uh, no takers, and I didn't find out until I got back to this country that there had been those complications, and by the time they were able to be cleared out at all, radio was, was mm. disappearing to the east. The National Broadcasting Company presents The Adventures of Sam Spade, Detective. <laughs> Detective Agency. Me, sweetheart. Say. Oh, Sam. I'll take it easy. The papers are on the street. I saw them. So did I. There'll be some red-faced editors ducking behind their green eye shades tomorrow. What do you mean, Sam? You don't plan up the score until the returns are all in, F. This applies to presidential elections, boxing matches, and executions at San Quentin Prison. Sam, you mean Willie? I mean Willie. Batten down the hatches and turn over your foam rubber cushion wonder girl, for even now I'm homeward bound with a stride-by-stride account of a 12-hour marathon, which I shall call, for obvious reasons, the hail and farewell caper. In November, NBC revived the series with Stephen Dunn in the lead. No sponsor signed on. This last episode, the hail and farewell caper, aired on April 27, 1951. And the adventures of Sam Spade departed the airwaves for good. You probably didn't spend three or four days rehearsing one of those scripts. No. <laughs> Far from it, no. I would get on there, uh, as I remember, about 11.30 on a Sunday morning and read it around the table, and uh, we'd spend about half an hour, Bill and I, rewriting, cutting. Then we'd put it on the mic, go to lunch, come back and dress it and put it on the air. At one time, we had to do two shows, one for the East and one for the West Coast here. And then, of course, when they found out that recording wasn't a dirty name, yeah. Bing was responsible right. for that. Yeah. So we did one show, and that was it. They just do the recording for the West Coast. Yeah. Poor West Coast. They always get the second best, yeah. There's some wild stories that people have told about the second shows, you know, where they'd always they'd break for dinner or something like that, and then uh, invariably one of the important characters on the get show a would have slice. a couple more uh, yeah. martinis than he Well, that was a terrible been. thing about doing two shows, you know. You couldn't really relax and enjoy yourself because if you did, you, you know, you might foul up the show. Yeah. <laughs> and so we did all that after the second yeah. show. The Adventures of Sam Spade, Detective, brought to you by Wild Root Cream Oil Hair Tonic. 
the non-alcoholic hair tonic that contains lanolin. Wild Root Cream Oil. Again and again, the choice of men who put good grooming first. Bernadine, anything wrong? You sound almost human. It's not Bernadine, Sam. It's me, Effie. Eff! But I'll tell Bernadine about your compliment. How are things? Well, uh, I've made out as best I could. I don't want to, don't want you to think that I begrudged you a vacation. After all, you have worked hard. You uh, did deserve it. Sam Spade, is that all you have to say to me? I'm not putting the blame on you. After all, it is a state law, so I can hardly accuse you of letting me down at a time when I needed you most. You might at least ask me if I had a good time. I'm sorry if your conscience bothered you. Oh, well, it didn't. I had a divine time, and I met all sorts of interesting people, mostly men. You don't say. What else? Well, it was this desert ranch, you know, with a lot of uh, buttes around. You uh, mentioned those. No, Sam, no, no, no. They're the result of erosion. Those outdoor types, they go to pieces. Sam, are you pulling my leg? Not over the phone, Effie, but stay where you are. I'll be right down to look at your snapshots. And when you have the time, I'll dictate my report on the missing newshawk caper. <laughs> Dashiell Hammett, America's leading detective fiction writer and creator of Sam Spade, the hard-boiled private eye, and William Spear, radio's outstanding producer-director of mystery and crime drama, join their talents to make your hair stand on end with the adventures of Sam Spade. Presented by the makers of Wild Root Cream Oil for the hair. Wild Root Cream Oil. That's the famous name to remember, men, next time you buy hair tonic. Although Effie Perrine took her last dictation in the spring of 1951, this story has a happy ending. Lorene Tuttle's friendship with Howard Duff lasted the rest of her lifetime, and Duff eventually overcame the Red Scare. As listeners in the years since have collected programs, The Adventures of Sam Spade has continuously been a fan favorite. And now, with Howard Duff starring as Spade, Wild Root brings to the air the greatest private detective of them all in The Adventures of Sam Spade. Outside of Kanab on Virgin River. Kanab, the Pearl of the West. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. And did I mention the buttes? Oh, well, they're very interesting. The uh, result of erosion. Yes. And it's authentic, too. Faye Hamlin's ranch. You uh, mean a working ranch? Yes. You see, that way you get into the spirit. Mm-hmm. My job was to feed the chickens. And that's how I met him. <sighs> One of the buttes? Oh, Sam, he's a very cultured gentleman. Culture smulcher. What's he do for a living? He, well, he cures stammering. You don't say. What's his name? Charlie Shank. Charlie Shank? He's the founder of the Shank Institute of Articulative Correction, which I should learn. Articulative Correction. Where is this institute? Oh, I have the address here. Um, General Delivery, Butte, Montana. Mm Mm-hmm. You're sure you didn't help him break parole, Effie? Oh, no, oh, no, no. We just went on long walks together. Where to? Oh, different points of interest. Like, uh, like Wolf Canyon... Uh huh. He invited me on this camping ship, a trip. Honorable, of course. Mm. But I couldn't go on account of my sunburn. Oh, oh. I had an awful, awful. Oh, I still got bad. it, you see. Mm. And then, then he went back to Butte. He had to leave in such a hurry, he couldn't even say goodbye. Well. It was a pity, too, because an old friend he hadn't seen in years came looking for him just a few minutes later. With a warrant? No. No, he was an attendant in a nearby hospital. Mental? 
Oh, yes. Very intelligent. <coughs> he read me some of his poetry. Maybe you've heard it. Um, a loaf of bread, a jug of wine, and thou. Uh, wait a minute. Isn't that the Rubiat of Omer Khayyam? That was written by a guy named Fitzgerald. Well, of course. That's his pen name. Quite a penman. Yes, but he's paid his debt to society. And the other time it was a bad beef. Oh, naturally. He told me all about yeah, it. Yeah, sure. He cried on my shoulder afterwards. Sweetheart, when you make a mistake, it's a beaut. Sam, nothing happened. Well, I'm glad he cured you of stammering, anyhow. <clears throat> Ready? Oh, yeah. I've got a brand Work, new notebook. Work, you know. Life goes on. I've got a brand new notebook, Sam. I'll just turn over a new leaf. Not a bad idea, dear. <laughs> Uh, date, uh, July 18 to Mr. Alex M. Youngblood, uh, mm, try that again. Mr. Alex M. Youngblood, P.O., Box 317, San Francisco, from Samuel Spade, license number 137596. Dear Mr. Youngblood, I need a vacation myself. You need Charlie Shank. <sighs> you sound tired, Sam. Fortunately, until I met you, my only experience with any of the men and women who make your newspaper run had been with one of your corner newsboys who shortchanged me two times within as many days. Radio catered to inspirational things. Now, not particularly churchy things. I don't mean that word at all. But I mean radio dramatized lives of great and interesting and meaningful people. Where well, I don't see that so much now. I don't see uh, anything that I do, you know, anymore, uh, that has any nobility or any ambition, or anything that I believe in. I don't get to do parts that I believe in anymore. And it just riles me. It doesn't break my heart. It makes me very angry, truly. But all of these shows were exquisitely written. They had the finest writers in the world in radio. I don't know where they've gone. I don't know whether they've retired or what they're doing. On August 25th, 1975... Chuck Shaden interviewed Howard Duff at his home, just north of the Malibu Colony, along the Pacific Ocean. Duff was surprised to learn that his Armed Forces Radio Service work played a large role in the preservation of radio programs. You actually contributed to the saving of thousands and thousands of radio shows. I did? Because, absolutely, because you see, the networks never preserved the radio shows. I, I mean, they were all done live. Nobody bothered to record them. All that acid was they destroyed. Just, right, they went out. AFRS put these things, you edited out the commercials and you put them on the discs and then the discs were shipped all over the world. Sure. Long after the war, long after radio really had kind of moved out of the picture as it was as we knew it in those mm -hmm. 30s and 40s, some of these discs were found by GIs who grew up listening to those shows and they made tapes of them and sent them back home and if it wouldn't have been for that's probably the best thing that ever came out of World War II was the yeah. fact that those old radio shows Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't really aware of that. Somebody said, gee, I heard one of your old shows on the air. And I mm -hmm. said, well, I don't, I don't know where anybody would get a hold of a recording, because I asked CBS at one time uh, if they had it. No, they destroyed them all, because yeah. I don't even have one, one lousy acetate <laughs> from all those well, five I'll send, years. I'll send you a tape. Thank you. If you'd like. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, some, no, somebody did send me a tape. While Howard Duff moved into film and TV, he was also part of the network radio revival in the 1970s, acting in both the Zero Hour and the Sears Radio Theater.
although Howard Duff was surprised to find how deeply he contributed to radio. The subject of our next episode of Breaking Walls had no such ignorance. My name was Eunice Quidens. Quidens. Mm-hmm. But I always hated the Eunice part of it. Then when I got to New York, I worked for Lee Schubert in the first Schubert Ziegfeld Follies that mm-hmm. Billy Burke produced after Ziegfeld had died. And Lee Schubert said, we're going to put your name up on the marquee and we can't put Quidens on there. It's <laughs> too long. So that's when I came up with Arden. I was waiting to go in and see him, and he'd kind of given me a deadline on a name. And I was reading a book, and the heroine was Eve. And I had a package of Elizabeth Arden's cosmetics (laughs) in my hand. And I tried it out on him, and he liked it, and that was it. Next time on Breaking Walls, it's the summer of 1948. We'll spend part of our vacation with perhaps the most famous teacher in American entertainment history and find out why we all love our Miss Brooks. The reading material used in today's episode was On the Air by John Dunning, Network Radio Ratings 1932-53 by Jim Ramsberg, as well as articles from the archives of Billboard magazine, Broadcasting magazine, Radio Daily, and Variety. On the interview front, Eve Arden, Howard Duff, and Lorene Tuttle were with Chuck Shaden. Hear their full chats at speakingofradio.com. Dick Joy, Elliot Lewis, and E. Jack Newman were with John Dunning for his 71 KNUS program from Denver. Howard Duff, June Havoc, and Bill Spear were with Dick Bertell and Ed Corcoran for WTIC's The Golden Age of Radio. Hear their full chats at goldenage-wtic.org. Lorene Tuttle remembered radio with Same Time, Same Station on February 6, 1972. Frank Stanton spoke with CBS in honor of their 50th anniversary in 1977. And Mary Jane Croft was with Spurvac on March 14, 1992. For more information, please go to spurvac.com. Selected music featured in today's episode was Fever by Peggy Lee Smoke Gets in Your Eyes by The Mallet Men Young at Heart by Frank Sinatra The Prologue and Main Title Piece from High Spirits by George Fenton and Atomic Cocktail by Slim Gaylord Special thanks to our sponsors The Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society 12 Chimes It's Midnight and The Fireside Mystery Theater Find them all on iTunes or at their links in the written credits. Subscribe to Burning Gotham, the new audio drama set in 1835 New York City. It's available everywhere you get your podcasts and at burninggotham.com. A special thank you to Ted Davenport and Jerry Handages, two radio show collectors who helped supply material for this episode. They're who the large retailers go to. Ted's got a Facebook group, Radio Memories. And for Jerry, please visit otrsite.com. I've been visiting since 2000. 
I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gassman of Spurvac. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA radio network. Breaking Walls episode 106 will join Eve Arden's Connie Brooks at Madison High. This episode will be available beginning August 1st, 2020. Everywhere you get your podcasts and at thewallbreakers.com. In the meantime, give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever platform you listen, especially iTunes. You can also join the Wallbreakers Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash thewallbreakers. And if you've got some spare change, you can become a Patreon supporter for as little as a buck a month by going to patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. So, until August 1st, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls episode 105, and I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much. Push a button, turn a dial. Your work is done for miles and miles. When it hits, bound to shake Because it feels like an earthquake That's the drink that you don't pour Now when you take one sip You won't need any more If you're small as a beetle Or big as a whale Atomic cocktail